Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about general media and production and virtual events. And our second hour is usually something we want to spend a little bit more time on. And today, we're very excited to have Andy Carluccio, Jonathan Cocatello, and Sam Kakaiko on. And they're going to be talking about all the new things on Zoom. So, uh, so stay tuned for that in the second hour. If you've got questions for them, go ahead and throw those into McConaughey. And uh, right now, we'll go ahead and jump into the questions. Bill, what do we have? First one comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. And Paul says, Google Photos is adding, adding generative AI tools to selected users. Doesn't Google Photos already have a pretty decent set of AI-like tools? Go ahead, John. Just lost my mute button. What do you know? Uh, yes, Paul. So, so um, AI is about 70 years old this year. And... Uh, General uh, GANs, general adversarial networks, have been around for a long time. That's what Google Photos have, has been using. Generative AI didn't get good, the stuff that was released until 2022. And so you'll see generative tools be added into, into Google Photos just so you can do rudimentary things like we do in Photoshop and in, in um, MidJourney, et cetera. So, so it's an evolution of Google Photos is all it is. Next question. Tim Mann in Melbourne, Australia. Thoughts on using Sure's Axiant Dante as the primary and only connection to a QL1 for a theater show? Uh, yeah, that's primarily how we uh, we do that. <laughs> so, so Axiant is is considered pretty much for us the standard of what we do for most of our large events, and we usually deliver it to a QL1. Uh, so the exact format that you're talking about is how I do most of my large shows. Um, and it's been really successful. You do have to have someone who understands the Axiant um, system well, the QL1 well, and Dante Networks well. Um, so it's not something that is, uh, you, you need to think about that a little bit before you uh, do it. But if you have a good operator who understands those, those um, platforms, uh, you'll have a lot of success. Uh, go ahead, John. So I didn't realize until I hooked up my my X32 and had to buy the $500 Dante card that the Sure Axiom had its clock built into it. Do you guys use that as the master clock ever? Uh, I think we usually use an external clock. I have to look. I have to look at it. But clocking is a big deal. You can't have two of them clocking because if two devices on the Dante network clock, eventually they'll run out of line and it turns off for about a second and a half. Not that it's ever happened to me in the middle of a show. Not that I'm bitter. But uh, yeah, that's the only thing you have to be careful of is the clocking. Next question. Khalid Al-Jamayan, uh, Hassa Saudi Arabia, says, for the best quality sound for everyday virtual meetings in an open office, what do you recommend for a mic that can be off-camera or low-profile like the DPA? I already have a Mix Pre 2 with Noise Assist. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. It kind of depends on how live that office is and what kind of sound treatment there is. You could use this uh, like uh, Alex and I are using is Stellar X2. Alex is using it, I think, into his Mix Pre 10 or something. One of those mixed pre-sixes maybe with uh, noise a three. assist. A three. A three. Oh, good. Oh, God, you've downgraded to a three. I, uh, have, with, oh, I, had to, oh, I had to move the Scorpio to the field, and so I had to go to, you, you know, change to the mixed pre-3. Well, we're both using the same microphone, but his, he likes his on camera, and I like mine off camera, so mine is right below the frame. It's 
just ducking down and coming in sideways on a boom arm. So it stays right out of frame, but it stays as close to me as it is to Alex just about. And it delivers a nice sound. If you have a very, and I don't have any kind of sound treatment around me in this room. It's just a normal living room. So as long as there's not a lot of echo in that room with a lot of hard surfaces, it should work fine. If there is a lot of echo, noise assist may not be able to remove that for you. It'll remove a lot of other sounds, uh, ambient noises and things. But uh, I don't know how well it removes echo, Alex. Maybe you can speak to that because I haven't used it in a live in a live room situation. But um, I think that if you want to move, if there is too much echo, a DPA would be the next choice to move the microphone closer to yourself to eliminate the uh, the rest of the room sounds. And DPA is a good choice or a countryman. Go, Bill. Yeah, that's what I've always done. Go with one of the head-worn microphones. They're they're so small and uh, hard to notice now that they don't really present an on-camera challenge. And yeah, moving a microphone even from four or five or six inches away like we do here, uh, directly addressing a microphone to literally a couple of millimeters from the corner of your mouth will increase your signal as opposed to the noise of the office, suppress the background sounds. Now, there are different kinds of capsules, and sometimes I have gone with a less sensitive capsule. Uh, some of the DPAs and uh, the Countrymen and Shures and other things have some capsules that have a lot of reach, and that really is fighting against what you want here. You want a capsule that doesn't have a ton of reach so that it just stays isolated to the, the sounds immediately hitting it around. So uh, there's various models to test out, but that's what I do. Yeah, I use, uh, when I'm on the road, I use a DPA 4066, um, and that has worked fairly well for me. It's a little bit more bassy and a little less sibilant than the Countryman H6, which is the other one that we have a lot of as, as well. So it just really depends. Um, those are the two that we kind of tend to bounce back and forth from. I think my brother yesterday was on the, uh, was on the DPA, because I think I had the, I had the, um, the countryman because I have one of each in the house. Uh, the DPA is a little more expensive. Um, I think the countryman is in the fiber 550 range somewhere like that, and the DPA is probably in the 650 range somewhere in that range. So, so anyway, so those are the um, uh, those are the two big choices for a head worn. Uh, I do think that if you're in a loud environment, it's really hard to get. If there's a lot of things going on around you, it's really hard to get a mic out of frame and have it actually work. Um, you just you're fighting physics. So, so I think that I would look at a at a headset. And those are pretty high quality headset mics. Next question. Douglas Carmichael comes to us. Next, would an RME Digiface Dante be a solid interface choice for a small studio migrating to Dante? Uh, it, it it oftentimes is a great tool that you might include in it. I don't know. It, it really depends on what you're trying to do. So do you need that Digiface? That just depends on uh, what you're, when you're saying you're moving into that, you have to make a decision about what are you trying to achieve? Um, so we didn't need one for a long time. Now we, we like ours <laughs> a lot. Um, we're converting mostly, I think, to and from Maddie. Uh, next question. Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. Uh, morning, everyone. Looking into 3D printing, what does the panel think of the Anchor Make M5C 3D printer? And he's got a link there to it. I go ahead, Courtney. Well, I've just, uh, I think I've seen one demo of the Anchor. It looks very clean. I like the look of the Anchor Make. It looks, it's uh, pretty cleanly designed. It does seem to have a Bowden tube, but I think it is a direct drive extruder. Uh, I would wait for uh, a bit. I've ordered the new Creality has come up with a new Ender 3, believe it or not, for entry level 
Uh, it's only $200, so it's half the price of the Anchor Make. It's not quite as fast. It is 250 millimeters per second for the new Ender 3 V3, but it's a direct drive extruder. It's uh, It's got uh, BL Touch, it's got automatic bed leveling, so it's got a lot of the features that this Anchor Make does for uh, less than half the price. So that's a good entry-level way to get started. But the Anchor Make looks like a pretty good one, although I haven't tried it uh, myself. It looks pretty clean, and it looks uh, you know, up to 300C printing, but it's not enclosed, so you would have to build an enclosure around it if you're going to print uh, high-temperature stuff like nylon uh, uh, or um, yeah, any of the higher-temperature uh, nylon or uh, what am I trying to think of? Uh, polycarbonates. Yeah, the the I mean, when you start paying more for something that has roughly the same performance, uh, you're paying for convenience and ease of use and some, sometimes stability. So a lot of times as you start going into the less expensive ones, they're just a little geekier. So you just have to decide how geeky you want to get. I just want, I got one that was more expensive um, and uh, it just uh, just works. <laughs> like I, I, I didn't want to try to figure it out <laughs> and it was enclosed. So, so, but it was a lot more expensive than the, than the anchor. Um, next question. Tlaloc Lopez Waterman in Galisteo, New Mexico, he wants to talk uh, internet connectivity. He says he's got 70 down, 12 up, and he's using WhatsApp for daily or weekly international business calls to Mexico, and they're having constant dropouts. Any suggestions? Go ahead, John. I've had troubles with WhatsApp from various places around the world, too. I would try different platforms, maybe even FaceTime or Zoom or Teams. Try another platform and see what happens. Yeah, I don't think WhatsApp's video delivery is very good. I mean, you may be stuck with it because you've got team members that are attached to it. So that that's probably the, that's the hard part with international calls. Um, generally, I find that WhatsApp works okay for for audio, um, and uh, uh, but for video, it, it hasn't been. If, if if what you're doing is is video, it it seems to be a not very stable. Uh, I admit I don't use it as much anymore. I don't keep any of the any any of those apps on my on my main phone, but I do use it occasionally on my on my other phone. Um, and I it's never been stable for me. Um, so and and I have a lot faster connection. Um, I just don't think it's a great platform to do calls on. Um, but I I get that. I, I I wish we had a better answer, but it's just not a very stable platform for you know that kind of communication. It's really a great text platform. Uh, next question. All right, here we go. Paul Wallace says, comment on the Melee Overclock 3C Mini PC Windows 11 Pro Micro PC Celeron N5095, that's 4C4T, up to 2.9 gigahertz, TDP 15 watts, 16 gigabyte DDR4, 512 gigabyte ROM, small desktop computer with two times HDMI, 4K at 60 hertz, USB-C, Wi-Fi 6, Bluetooth 5.2, Visa mount, all for $249 US. Now, I think that, so there's two things here. One is, Paul, I think you could have just said comment on the Melee Overclock 3C. It, it has all the, <laughs> all those features are there. We don't need you to read them out. It was a great test for uh, Bill. Um, so, so I think that in the future, just use the, the name and give us a link. We don't need all the, all the data on it. Um, but I will say for our backend crew, let's save that question. That's a great one for our test, our test systems that we do on Tuesday. So for, we do these uh, at noon on Tuesdays. We, we have a, um, a, uh, basically a rehearsal, like people can learn to be a reader 
moderator or, or a host or other things like that. And I think this is a great one we should give everybody because Bill did a great job. I think we ought to give Bill a big hand. That was, that was, that was quite a list, but let's not do that again. Uh, go ahead, I looked at it and all the blood drained yeah, from my face. I, I was like, what the what? clap went up from the crowd. <laughs> okay, go ahead, Courtney. Uh, I looked at this uh, when they came out, and I think what happened is there was a chip shortage at Melee in China. And so they decided to put out something, and they went back to a, a previous generation of Intel chip, uh, the 5095, which is, and they just uh, changed the BIOS and allow you to overclock it a little bit. Um, it makes it run a little bit faster, but I don't think it's up to the same uh, uh, utility as the newer uh Alder Lake, um, you know, Gen 11 chips or Gen 12 chips that are out there, the N100, um, that have uh, better GPU, better GPUs built into them. They have more execute, double the execution units than, than these older overclocked, overclocked machines. So I think you'd be better off uh, getting one of the newer Intel uh, <clears throat> N100s or uh, 5105 uh, uh, chipsets uh, that would in a melee melee makes them in the quieter three that would be probably a little better for you my search usually just ends with the word overclocked <laughs> so, so usually if i see overclocked the chips are all capable of a certain speed the re, and they and they, we can overclock these these chips um because what but the manufacturer made a decision that this part of the wafer that was generated is not sufficient to run that at that speed you know, they all came a lot. Many of these ones at different speeds all came off the same wafer, and they the ones in the center that <laughs> they gave a higher rating to that can run higher, and the ones on the outer edge that didn't come out as well uh, didn't you know get a lower rating. So overclocking it just to me just seems insane. Uh, next question. Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand says, Google updated their inactivity policy where content may be deleted due to inactivity. I think it's a bit of a disgrace given that some people may no longer be with us. Any thoughts? And he's got a link there. Um, I think that you get what you pay for. <laughs> like, you know, you're not paying to have it set up there. I mean, they're just leaving it up there. At some point, we're talking about something in mass. Um, I think that uh, in general, we have a lot of debris all over the internet of things that it's not so much people who have passed away, but people who have just stopped working on something. And at some point, you have to think about it. If you're paying for it, I think that uh, if you're continuing to pay for it, but it, it'd be like you just leaving your house there and then people say, well, we can't move the house. And they're like, well, no one's paying for that house. So so it's still it's still... There's still a server that's being taken up and bandwidth and everything else. I don't, I don't know why Google feel, should feel like they're, they owe us anything. Uh, go ahead, Bill. Yeah, I've actually run into this. I had a friend who was on a board of directors with me for a charity, and he passed away, sadly, a relatively young man. And um, his wife grabbed his, had thankfully access to his accounts, but she wasn't very technically sophisticated. And for the next seven years... Anytime she sent something out of his account, it pinged into everybody's account like he was still posting. And it just, that was such a long time without the ability to take out of the stream something that really was um, historical, not active. Just said, there's got to be a way to do this. I know that Apple has changed their policy so that they actually, you can, if you like, Add somebody to your account in case something tragic happens to you and somebody needs to shut things down. So I think they're struggling with this. The Internet's been alive for such a long time. There's so many people up there that there's got to be a lot of dead accounts that have to be pruned out of it somehow. Go ahead, Courtney. 
Yeah, I think this came about because, you know, if Android, if you buy an Android phone, you have to have a Google account tied to it, a Gmail account tied to it. And so I think a lot of people that moved over to Android and then moved back to iPhone just abandoned those Gmail accounts uh, that were given to them that they never used to begin with. Uh, so I think they're trying to weed out the, all those dead Gmail accounts that nobody ever uses. Same thing with Android TVs or TVs that run on the Android uh, operating system or Google TV. A lot of people had to have a Google account to set them up, but they never really used that as a Gmail account. So I think they're just weeding out Gmail accounts uh, that are unused uh, and because they just have too many to maintain. Yeah, and again, I think that if you're paying for it, I think that you should be um, you should you should expect to be able to have it stay there forever. But if you're not paying for it, that's that's why you know you have to decide what service you use and whether it's worth um, you having access to it. But I don't think that people giving us free services really owe us much of anything. Um, next question, Douglas Carmichael's up next. Would there be a less expensive equivalent to the Trinity that prosumers can afford? Go ahead, Courtney. Sorry, I was arranging things. Uh, yeah, there, there's a couple. It depends on, it depends. Not that it's going to give you the flexibility of that Trinity system that, that can, you know, go from low mode to high mode. But there are entry-level Steadicam systems for, uh, you can get one for around $4,000 or $3,300. Of course, without the camera here, and it's a real Steadicam. It has the vest, the arm, and the sled. Um, and it'll take up to about 10 pounds. Another choice that you might look into is if it's not a Steadicam, but it is the Ronin 4D 4-axis cinema camera comes with the camera uh, for around uh, you know, 6,700 with the camera. No, I don't think it includes any lenses for that. But uh, take a look at the video for that because it's an amazing piece of work. It doesn't support the weight. You have to support the weight of the camera. It's a, it's a, a four-axis gimbal or a three-axis gimbal but I think it does pitch and roll, uh, keeps a stable horizon, and does all that other good stuff uh, for an entry-level price. So those are a couple of choices that you have for the entry-level stuff to get you started with Steadicam work. Yeah, there's a lot. I mean, that there's not, yeah, as, as Courtney said, there's not much of an equivalent to what the Trinity does, uh, but there's only probably, I mean, there's just a handful of them in the United States. So it's, so it's a, it's a pretty rare rig. Um, that's why I thought it'd be fun to show. Did you guys enjoy yesterday? Was it, did it come? I was on the other side, so. Complete engagement. I th we hardly lost anybody. We had, we grew questioners as the, as the hour went on. So I think it was fabulous. <laughs> well, that's good. I, I could barely feel my arms by the end. <laughs> I wanted to see him do some more, you know, running around the backyard doing these complex, you know, yeah, over, the, over the trash can into the, into the patio one. furniture <laughs> and all that stuff. There's just probably another one that could be done there. Um, you know, the... Uh, uh, I, what happened was I have a big heavy, I mean, he talked about it a little bit, but I had kind of a heavy rig. It was a, I had, um, uh, I had to put a battery on it. So I had my little um, FX30, but then I had a, a small rig battery and then I had rails and it just wasn't, and I, what I had planned to do, of course, was to put it on a monopod, but we had a little trouble right at the, right before the show started as well. And, and, um, and it wasn't, wasn't connected to the audio thing, which turned out to be something else. Cause I don't know if you went to YouTube, Bill, but it was the audio, his audio was fine. <laughs> so, yeah. so it was, it just was a monitoring issue, but, but the, um, uh, but, uh, uh, but we, because of something happened right before the show, I, uh, 
I didn't run out, run upstairs and get, grab the monopod. So I suddenly, the show started, and I suddenly realized I'd forgotten the monopod. And so I'm like, well, well we're just going to see how long I can last. It wasn't well, too bad. Well, you were on the was, deck too, so that adds a lot of extra weight, too. It's not too much extra weight. The deck is pretty low, pretty low, but it was just, it was a, it wasn't so much the weight. It was just kind of a wonky uh, build, you know, because it wasn't designed for me to hold on to it. So it was, it was just like a thing. But, um, but I thought we got some good, ang- some good, um, uh, uh, some good stuff, but hopefully it looked good. We want to do more of those. And so that's kind of an experiment. My brother was willing to come down and he, you know, he lives an hour and a half from me. So for him to be there at seven meant he was leaving his house a little before five thirty, And, um, so it was really, uh, it was great to have him, have him down. We're going to see, he's, I think he had a lot of fun. And so he was like, Oh, I could do that again. So, so, um, so maybe we'll do something where we actually do a shoot or something like that. Um, but we want to, I have a a goal to be able to do productions in front of everybody here or, you know, a larger audience and then have people be able to ask questions because I think that's the best way to learn is just to see someone do something and then have them walk back over to the camera and, and chat. So, um, so anyway, so we'll, uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, let's go ahead to the next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas is up next. Google has over 300 and counting topics that it uses to categorize people. Do you know what category you are? This scares me to death. No, we, we all know that this is happening. I mean, this is how they figure out what to, what to put in front of you. Go ahead, Courtney. Nobody puts baby in a box. <laughs> <laughs> I hate being categorized. I find this now all the time on my YouTube uh, channel because it's now presenting these five categories that uh, you know pertain to the things I've looked at most recently. Uh, but, you know, then, but it, it boots off stuff that, you know, I like to come back to every four, three or four weeks, you know, to see what was happening on this channel or that channel that I haven't really subscribed to, but I like to go back and visit. So they fall off, and so I have to go back and do a search for them to get them to come back to the foreground. So I, I don't think, uh, yeah, I don't like the way that it's working now because it, it becomes uh, too limited uh, in, in its search results, I mean, in its presentation of what it's presenting to you as choices uh, than it used to be. I used to have much more broad, eclectic collection uh, than just five topics. You know. Yeah, go ahead, Debil. Same thing. I, w- I once went, I, so I spent a lot of my early days in radio and stuff. I collected a lot of music in, in the form of LPs. And my tastes are relatively widespread. So I had classical and jazz and rock and roll and country and, and just tons of different categories. Whole, here's a little comedy section and so forth. I went to sell my collection and I put it out in the yard. And about every third person came up and says, this is the weirdest collection I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> there is no consistency. It's all over the place. And I was kind of proud about that. So, yeah, it, I, I, Courtney's was joking a little bit by don't put me in a box. But that is a lot of us. That's our lives. We're interested in a lot of different things. And when they try to shoehorn you, it, it feels kind of weird. Yeah, I mean, a lot of times we talk about when we think about these kind of things, we talk about the construct versus reality. You know, reality is infinite, we would offer, and most people are infinite, but we build constructs for them um, so that we can operate with them. You know, we have a construct called... uh, Gravity. <laughs> it doesn't exist. Gravity doesn't exist. We have a way of describing how things work around us and the construct gravity 
describes that effectively so that we can op operate in our life. And so we, but we always have to be careful of we can build a construct and then that construct limits how we look at reality, um, you know, because it's where we stop relating to reality and start just relating to the construct. And so the, um, so anyway, so I think that the problem always is what we're pointing out is the challenge that Google built a, a construct on how to, you know, put people in, in uh, categories. Uh, it's not who they are. It's just enough accurate that it's successful. Um, and so that's the, that's the thing that we always have to kind of keep in mind is that, that the, uh, we're not really measuring the real thing. We're measuring um, some subset that it fits into. Um, so anyway, so it's, it's going to be, uh, you know, I, this is the way these things work. If you don't like it, then don't go and Google <laughs> because that, that's, that's the business model. Uh, next question. Next one comes from Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand. Thoughts on the Opal C1 webcam? Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Well, I certainly haven't used it yet, but I have gone to their website enough to know I hate their website. Uh, is it one of those long rolling websites? Oh, it's oh. worse than that. It 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 does this. I hate you know, these websites. I just hate them. Yeah. I'm like, and oh my goodness. Like, I don't know how it's organized, <laughs> and it does little uh, zoom. You know, it. it yeah. Writes the dialogue on. Oh, you want to go to an overview? It is like it, the, the, this is the new trend specs. I think for these websites, and it's just the worst. Yeah. And it, yeah, you know, as you roll through, you know, it rotates the camera and slides up these other thing, and they're tied together. You can't do one. <laughs> anyway, what it looks like, if you look at the camera here, it looks kind of like a uh, GoPro Hero with a uh, USB connection in the back of it. It does require you, I think. Uh, you know, it's kind of hard to go through all this stuff. Um, it does require you to have an app connected to it. Uh, oh, look, we could look at the anti-aliasing. Um, anyway, it, uh, yeah. uh, I think it's too tied. It does, I think it's cross-platform. It's 250 bucks. I think you might be better off with, a you know, paying a, a few, a hundred or so more and get you a, a, a Canon DSLR that supports webcam out. I think yeah. it would be a little better. Yeah, I think that I I do think that right now at the three hundred dollar and below, if you just go to three hundred dollars and below, I think that the um, the option of the Link three sixty um, or the Insta three sixty Link or the Obsbot Tiny two, which I'm testing right now successfully, you know the the you know if you're going to go for a smaller aperture and you want to have or a smaller chip and you want to have a lot of control and really have it be a webcam then those, I think, are the two best ones under $300. As you go over $300, I would agree with Courtney that there's a lot of options that are DSLRs that are... APS sensors are fine. We would... APS and Super 35 is kind of interchangeable in a lot of ways as far as size goes. Um, and so, like, I'm using an APS size sensor right now uh, with a fairly fast lens, and that that seems to work pretty well as far as as how it looks. So, there, but there's plenty of things as about, at about $350, $400 that are either used or new. There's the Canon... You're using the... Is it the 50? The, um, yeah. You're talking to me? Yeah. <laughs> the the yeah. MK, the 50 Mark yeah. 2, I think, or 3. Yeah. Yeah. So the 50, and, and that one I think is relatively inexpensive. And there's, I think then you start getting to the Sony 5100s. Um, the one that I'm testing right now is this guy. I just got the new, I got, I finally got the, this is the battery replacement. So I, this is the EV. 10, um, I, I can't get the name, ZVE10. Um, and so this is more, I mean, this, this camera is about $700 plus a, 
$400 lens. Um, the problem that I, I've had with it is that during Mac break, it turned off. <laughs> like it, and, and it's Sony's power management is just a disaster. But outside of that, um, the so every, with every camera, it's something, right? So it's autofocus is great, which is why I'm testing a lot of Sony's. It's power management is horrible, which is why I have a, this little insert for the battery. Because if, if for some reason, if it feels like the battery is low, it just turns off, even though it has external power. So the, the its ability to actually power itself from the external power seems to be limited. And so, um, so anyway, so that's the problem with Sony's. Um, but the, uh, but anyway, I think they start with APS sensors at about 50, at about $450 or $500 with the, I think it's the 5,100 and they all look really good. So, um, so just take a, take a look at those. Um, I got this one because the screen flips out. <laughs> so that, I think it's the least expensive one that has a screen flip out, which is really useful when I'm setting these up. Uh, but the Opal, um, you know, I tried to order it when it first came out and it wasn't available and uh, I, I should probably go back and take a look at it, but I haven't, I haven't gotten to play with it either. Uh, next question. Hasma Gajar, friend from Cape Town, South Africa, not blessed with ears for AirPods Pro. Looking at the Sony or B&O versions, use cases listening to music, any advice? Uh, Nigel and I got the, we, we did it, we kind of worked on it together. We got the Ultimate Ears Fits. Um, I don't know if I have the case around here right in front of me, but these are headsets that you put into your ears. The first time you use it, you turn them on and they get just a little warm, not hot, but just a little warm. And what they do is they form the, the plastic to your ear. Um, these are the best fitting ear, um, you know, ear pieces I've ever used. Audio quality on calls is not as good as the AirPods um, or or the and I use the open comms when I'm usually talking on you know these use these open comms when I'm doing calls. Um, but when I want to listen to music and I want to have them feel like they're really in my ears, uh, I've been using the I I generally use the Ultimate Ear Fits. Uh, you can definitely get more expensive ones that will sound better, but um, those are at about two hundred and fifty dollars or whatever. Probably the best ones I've had in that price point. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I don't know if he's looking for a wireless Bluetooth headset or a wired headset. I'm not I, sure. I, I assumed he was looking for for wireless. I mean, yeah. yeah. And they, in that case, the Sony, you know, you'd be in this quality, the $350, like the WH-1000XM4. Those are noise-canceling headsets. Uh, I, I really don't like noise-canceling headsets because they color the sound too much. And uh, if you're not using them in a noisy environment, uh, like on a plane or something, then... Just for enjoyment of music, I wouldn't get a noise-canceling headset. I'd just get a normal set of headsets. And I really don't like Bluetooth, so I'd rather go with wired But because uh, Bluetooth, you know, doesn't give you quite the full frequency response as a good headphone preamp does. And a quick reminder that, of course, you can ask questions uh, throughout the show. So if you've got questions, uh, general questions are good for the first hour and, and uh, questions for Zoom, uh, for the Zoom team are good for the second hour. They'll be on uh, here in just about a half an hour. So uh, go ahead and throw those questions in. Um, and uh, of course, this is Friday. This is kind of a general logistics and infrastructure and uh, services day. Um, so uh, so stay tuned for, uh, for more of that. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next. The security conference DEFCON is known for requiring payment for registration in cash only to increase attendee privacy. Will private person-to-person -person payment apps become dominant in the U.S. as they have in other countries like Sweden's Swish? Go ahead, Bill. I think they will always be on the rise, although it seems weird to me. I, you know, I 
keep throwing a little bit of cash in my billfold, and then I look up six months later and I haven't used any of it. Why? Because the friction has been so taken out of automated processing payments that it's just always a whole lot easier to use um, the, the phone or the watch or something to make a payment in real time. It's just less of a hassle. I remember the last time I was given a handful of change coming back and I wasn't even wearing uh, something that had pockets in it. I didn't even know what to do with it. So you just toss it in the little tip jar at the register or something like that. It's, it's I think, friction. It's all about that. Now, in terms of the, the micropayment stuff that many other countries are way advanced over the U.S. in, yeah, I can see that being increasingly on the rise such that if you have small purchases, it just somehow, with a entirely encrypted chain end-to-end, even lowers friction further, and I'm looking forward to that day. Go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I don't hang out too much in this uh, untrackable uh, money transfer because I like to pay my taxes and keep track of all my payments. But there's Zelle. There's a number of, uh, uh, you know, low-price, free uh, electronic transfer, but most of them work off of your email or your cell phone number. So I don't think they're untrackable. Uh, for a person-to-person payment. They work very easily, and it, as long as you have the email of the other person, you can just click how much you want to send them and click send, and they have it almost immediately into their setup Zelle account. Um, but um, And I like, uh, like Bill says, I like to use uh, Google's tap to pay or Google Pay and just tie it to a, a credit card. That way I have a record of all transactions. Uh, I don't know how well these small ca- these small person-to-person uh, transactions that are not trackable. I don't know how well those are going to work. Yeah, I I, I use Apple Pay. <laughs> I don't know how to use any of the other ones. So if someone needs to get paid some other way, I'll write them a check. But I, I don't I don't like I don't I don't have any like I'm just not willing to learn anything else. So, so so that's the only one that I know how to use. Next question. Next question comes to us from Hazma Gajar in Cape Town, South Africa. Alex, any updates on the OBSBOT camera test? I'm afraid my week has been too busy to really set these up, but I'm going to be working on it over the weekend. So if you ask again next week, I will have looked at them. They're both sitting here waiting to be plugged in. Uh, but uh, the, getting set up for my brother's show yesterday was non-trivial during the week, during a busy week, um, and then non-trivial yesterday. It was, you know, it seems, I should have taken pictures of it because it was just, it was, I know it seemed like a simple thing. My brother's going to jump on and talk, but you have to remember my brother, my brother and I were on another floor, and then we had wireless mics, wireless returns, wireless video, all on battery, all on, you know, like there was a whole, like, and as I, as I unraveled it all week, which culminated in me getting up at like three o'clock yesterday morning to kind of get it all laid out and everything else. Um, I, uh, I, it, you know, it was, it was a deep, deeper water than I had expected. So I haven't looked at anything else. Other, that was my project for office hours for this week. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll take another pass at it over the weekend and in the first couple of days of next week. Uh, next question. Stefan Fischer, Worksburg, Germany, says, Alex, do I get it right that you're building an iPad app to draw on the screen replacing your Wacom solution? Uh, We're not going to replace it. So the goal right now that we have um, is, so this is my little drawing app here, and this works really well, and I have to admit that it's it's really a a nice system at this point. Um, uh, Wansi Robles is putting it, it, I've been working with him on it. And this works really well. There's a couple drawing things that we're tackling with the iPad version. We wanted to release them both together, you know, as one app. Um, We may have to separate them out just so we can work on the iPad a little bit 
longer. Um, uh, just draw small drawing stuff that we're working on there. Uh, but the, uh, the so it's not a replacement for it. It's just that if you want to use an iPad and you don't want to use to build my little system to do this, um, you you know give you a, a way to do that. I still think that the the system that I have built, which is basically a base Mac Mini with a switcher and a and a Wacom tablet, a Wacom tablet, Wacom Wacom, Wacom. tablet. We'll find our way to it. A I Wacom know, tablet. I we now know. So you have to see graph, uh, you know, and so, uh, but um, but Wacom tablet. Uh, I have mine set up so that, you know, what when you see me changing this, the big thing is, is that I have a stream deck tied in, which would be a little bit harder to do on the iPad. So I have this and then I, I have simply all these colors and the ability to, you know, make them, you know, thicker and stuff like that. It's all kind of built into the, you know, into the process now. Um, and so it's very quick for me to do what I need to do. And so I really like that. And, and so, um, and I think that I would cons- still use that, but what I've been, the reason I want to, you know, have an iPad version of it is that what I have found is if I'm visiting, you know, somewhere or I'm, I need to do something or I'm on the road, having the iPad there and be able to just have a whiteboard to draw on is better than nothing. Like it's not like the getting the video in and out is probably gonna take a little time um, to do both of those. But the, you know, it's, it's a pretty simple thing. And again, there's video pencils also available on the iPad. So that's another option there. Uh, next question. Next question comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Comment on this LG roll-around battery-powered touchscreen monitor. Any use cases you can think of? Uh, we talked about this on MacBreak. So this is a 27-inch monitor that comes in a suitcase uh, that you can open up. And the suitcase turns into a stand. So it's not literally like, you, it's not like just holding it. It's actually, it's a, you pull it out and you can set it up. Um, it's kind of focused on things like, uh, I guess, um, tailgate parties, people being able to kind of hang out with the, you know, um, somewhere and watch TV. So I think that that's, that's the target market. Uh, I had a, I, for my multi-view or something like that, but that's the only thing I could think of. And still, I probably wouldn't probably still just use some of the other tools we use in the, in the past. Go ahead, Courtney. It's kind of pricey. It's uh, for that size of a month. It's only 1080p. It runs on like probably Android TV. It is touchscreen. It's a touchscreen, but it and it rotates vertical or horizontal, and it's battery powered. I'm not sure. It, it with it doesn't lend. It doesn't look like something you'd have at a tailgate party, uh, but uh, you know because it has a big round base on it. Uh, I just don't see it worth that much money for a touchscreen. You know, you could do the same with a a much cheaper TV and, uh, you know, a block battery you plug it into uh, might be a little bit better. And it runs uh, probably just probably runs on Android TV. It just has an A7 processor in it. uh, Or maybe maybe it runs Apple uh, operating system. Doesn't say what. Next question. Peter Moore, Auckland, New Zealand. Again, the Neumann M147 tube mic, inspired by the U47 from the 1950s and so forth, has a valve or a tube, in, uh, sometimes called a tube, in place. Given my recent issues with my German-made Hughes and Kettner amp, which looks like it's going to be a Chinese-made valves and tubes at fault, any thoughts on that mic? You know, I think it just really depends on what you need it for. I mean, I think that there's a lot of, um, you know, the, I, I don't know if, you just have to look at if it's worth it <laughs> to, to do that. I think that as you start getting to mics like this, it's more esoteric than it is functional. Go ahead, Bill. Well, 147s have a huge reputation for being brilliant sounding mics. They're very 
highly prized. Uh, I agree with you that getting tubes for anything that uses an actual tube in the process is more and more problematic, particularly because most of them are now made in Russia, kind of built by hands. And with the whole Ukrainian thing going on, everybody's a little leery about doing business in that area. So it makes it more and more difficult. Uh, I think tube things are going to get more and more rare, more and more hard to maintain. But if you've got one that's working well, the people in the music industry just salivate over that type of mic. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. What's the best 120 volt to 12 volt converter for an RV or a production trailer? I guess the again, this will come back to more context. We don't know with it, with that information. What are you trying to power, and how many power supplies do you need, and what do those things look like? So there's a bunch of different options there. You probably probably need more a little bit more data, uh, Courtney. Yeah, I'm kind of confused by 120 volt to 12 volt. You mean starting with 120 volt and it's yeah, going to make just, a 12 volt uh, down conversion? Yeah, but, but the question is, is like, what are you powering with that? Yeah, are you going to power your and... whole RV 12 volt system off of a plugged in? Um, mm-hmm. uh, you just need a huge power supply is really what you're talking about. Like, you know, you know maybe you have a 20 amp or 30 amp power supply um, that just takes 120 volts and uh, rectifies it. And down, right. you know, changes voltage down to 12 volts. Now, if you're talking the other way around as an inverter, which will take your 12-volt power system in your RV and convert it to 120 volts so that you can uh, power, you know, standard household appliances off of it, uh, that's something different than their trip lights. There's lots of other uh, people that make inverters, and they, you have to go with a pretty beefy one if you're going to use it to, to provide AC power throughout the uh, RV Question Check for, for you. the RV, you know, manufacturers. Well, we're talking about voltage. Question for you, Courtney. Um, the I'm looking at getting a DTAP, DTAP distro. Do I have to worry about anything there? So, like, a, you know, it's like a one to three or one to four DTAP. Um, well, you know, just they, low amperage. You know, low. Every time you divide the voltage, it's just a matter of having the battery able to deliver the amps because it's just exactly, it's just yeah yeah. I mean, the other thing is you might want some that have rectifier to isolate those things so that if mm-hmm. one thing goes shorts out, it doesn't drag everything down. You know, right, right, right. All right, it crossloads from one to the other. You know. Next question, Stefan Fischer, back from Würzburg, Germany. What is your preferred solution to back up network attached storage? Another NAS, <laughs> you know, or, or yeah. So go ahead, Courtney. I use Carbonite uh, in addition to my NAS, and so I have my NAS, and I have certain folders backed up on Carbonite. So if in case somebody breaks into my house and grabs the NAS and runs out the door with it, I still have the stuff backed up in the cloud. So uh, that's my solution to multiple backups offsite and uh, of the NAS itself. Yeah, um, I, I generally for things that are important, I kind of follow the three, two, one, which is three copies, uh, two locations, one in the cloud. <laughs> so that's the you know those are the uh, your chances of losing things um, after that are pretty pretty low. Uh, next question. Bill Mew in Tunbridge Wells, UK says, I want a wireless mic with audio in both directions. So earpiece for the presenter. Any suggestions? And uh, we looked that up. That's IFB in the US is what we call that interruptible fullback. You go ahead, Courtney. I think Zaxcom makes some. They're very pricey. Um, expect on spending a lot of money uh, because they'll have built-in uh, Zaxnet. And uh, I, I don't know if they still make them, but they used to make one that had an IFB channel. It's lower It's lower fidelity uh, um, than the main channel, wireless mic channel, but yeah. it does give you a, a talk back. So look into Zax, Zaxcom. 
Also, look at the Microflex from Sure. So the Microflex, um, they have little um, lav wireless that have both an eighth-inch jack for your in-ear as well as a mic, mic jack. I'm kind of surprised that more people don't do this because be super useful to not have two 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 little packs that you have to put on uh, to make that actually work. Um, the advantage of having the two packs is that you just have a lot more flexibility. Um, but I will say that if you're using it for corporate, um, you know, I think that many times uh, the quality of the Microflex will be enough for what you need. And it is super convenient. Not the cheapest solution, but super convenient. I used to have two sets of them. And you put all of these little transceivers into a into a little charger unit and you push a button and it reorders them and what the numbers are for it so you don't have to figure out which one is which you just put them all in hit it put the numbers on them it all goes to a access point um, that then is on dante and then you have a little software that you can open it and control everything it's a really really well built system for that um and uh and i was i was pretty happy with it it for really fine uh audio solutions and really high profile stuff I can hear the, I can hear the bits. It's using a deck format, and and I can hear the bits, but it's super subtle, and it only really you only really see it when you go into high availability mode, where you have to add a lot of them. So if you're in the lower availability mode, um, you generally I think you'll find it to be uh, very acceptable. I would test it to make sure that you're happy with it, but that's the only thing I hear is in real quiet areas. You might in, in a noisy environment, you might hear it just a little bit way off in the distance at the negative thirty, negative thirty five. You might hear the you know, in, in the, in what's there, at least I hear it. And no one else seems to hear it. So they all think I'm crazy, but it's there. <laughs> Next question. Next one comes to us from John Worthington in Ogden, Utah. What's the best way to convert a USB webcam to HDMI for use with an ATEM? I have several Logitech Brio 4Ks lying around. Given that the Brio is finicky about USB cable length, I assume putting the converter near the camera with a longer HDMI is best. Go ahead, Bill. We ran into this problem uh, in the early days of office hours over and over and over again. And we all had a lot of these webcams as we bought them to kind of gear up for the pandemic back when it was shutting everything down. And in the first two or three years of that, we never found really good, inexpensive external converters that did that job. Usually you needed some sort of a powered computer in there. I haven't followed that since then. And maybe maybe Alex or some of the other people here have found solutions to taking that USB digital signal and converting it into HDMI with something that's affordable and that is not a hassle to connect a, an interior transformer or or converter or whatever is required. But I, I just, I, I think about that problem even today and think it's not as easy as I thought it should be. Yeah. Um, so Atomos makes um, the, I think it's the, um, let's see, webcam. I just can't remember. I have one here and I just haven't been able to, uh, Zato. So the Zato Connect, um, I have one sitting, I just moved a bunch of stuff around to get ready for that show that we did yesterday. And so I can't find it. So uh, I'm still in the process of testing. I have been unsuccessful at getting the Zato to pass signal or to even power my webcams. And I'm, I must be doing something wrong because I've been told by others in our group that they were very successful at that. So the Zato is a monitor, but it also is theoretically going to convert my webcam to HDMI. And I just haven't been successful at getting it to work. Uh, OBSBOT makes another one that also does, um, it does, USB-C to, uh, to HDMI. Um, the thing that we've had a challenge with is the UVC control. So passing the UVC control through these converters has not been successful so far. So, um, so that, that's the thing that, that we're still kind of wrestling with. Go ahead, Courtney. 
You know, the problem is because uh, webcams are designed to plug into a USB host, you have to have a little microcomputer in that converter that acts as the host. So it has to be able to talk to the webcam, it has to be able to power the webcam, and and or run any applications that you need to control that webcam with. So it has to be a little mini computer in itself, like a Raspberry Pi or some other type of uh, RISC-based processor. So that means that that adapter is going to probably cost more than the webcam itself. So it's kind of a uh, diminishing returns uh, on using your old webcams if you have to pay four times what the webcams cost to tie those four cameras, you know, uh, two cameras into your ATEM. You know. uh, next question. Next question comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Any comments on the live audio prep and setup for a Taylor Swift concert? There doesn't seem to be any budget limits. <laughs> <laughs> in, a, in a practical sense, there isn't. Um, the most expensive, for any concert like this, the most expensive part of the concert will be failure. So, you know, there is no amount of money that you can spend that you're not going to return get return on um, for making sure that you have the backups and everything else in place. So it is it is the highest quality everything and generally four layers of it. I think that there's a, we talked about it on, uh, it's called the grid or something like that, that, that there's a, if you look at Metallica, um, uh, behind the scenes, the Metallica show, they really walk through all the things they do where they have a primary, a backup, and a contingency, and even an emergency. And the emergency is like literally analog to the speakers. So there's a lot of backups that go into that. And that's Metallica, which is a big band, but not Taylor Swift. And so you can imagine that that they have pulled out all the stops. Um, I believe that her, uh, you know, her audio is all produced by Claire. And Claire is the... Claire, um, it's probably the the high, you know, that they, they, they're the ones that do all the big concerts. Like there's not, I mean, in the United States. And so, um, so that you're talking about a, a very specialized company managing her audio. Um, and, uh, and especially with no, uh, uh, no expenses, uh, ignored. <laughs> so they can, they can do whatever they need to go ahead, Bill. Yeah, the Claire Brothers, there's nobody more experienced with touring roadshow audio than them. I just think it's fascinating. And, and props to Ms. Swift. That, that is, her, her business acumen combined with her talent has been amazing. I just heard the other day that she wrote a bonus check of $100,000 each to her truck drivers because they have so much success with this and they want to keep this crew together that she's really treating the downline people like an integrated part of of the experience, and I just find that to be laudable, and I think she's doing it right and good for her. She's doing a lot more than that. She she's actually giving away money to food banks at every location she goes to. See, um, I they I guess they're not allowed to say the exact number of what she's giving. Uh, I guess that's part of the deal. But the way that they said it in San Francisco is the San Francisco food bank got enough money from her to pay five to feed five hundred thousand people for ten years. <laughs> like it's like you know, like it's just an incredible amount of money that she's distributing, and I think that's a master's course for many corporations and other organizations. If you know she's going to make a lot of money, she's probably going to make a billion dollars from this this tour, and it does help to a um, spread that wealth out. I think that one of the mistakes that a lot of billionaires and everything have is that they're not effectively spreading the wealth out, um, which is something that was very tribal in the past. It was always expected that the the wealthy or the chieftains or other things would do things that would Im- improve everyone's lives. And when they don't do that, when they say, well, my business is benefiting the world and they don't really um, make those differences, it creates more of the ability to do that. So I think she's blunted a little bit of that. I think she also has a lot of people who are um, ready to, uh, um, you know, they, 
you, you want her to come back to the community when she dumps millions of dollars into it, not just in the business, but also directly. So it's, um, you know, she's, she's been pretty effective at what she's, what she's putting together. I read the other day, they're projecting $2 billion for this. Oh, tour. $2 billion She's going to keep going $2 billion. I, 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 what I don't know is when they calculate that, whether they're calculating total revenue for her or total revenue. So when they say, oh, those tickets are $1,000 each, then you get somebody doing the math on $1,000 each. But that's not what the original cost of that ticket was. She might have sold that. So her revenue may be $150 or $200 a ticket. Um, it's the, it's the um, when they're resold is when they're there. And, and I think that what you are going to see I think she's probably going to be one of the pioneers in this. Is a lot of artists are talking about locking the tickets to the artist, to the to the to the buyer, so that so you can't buy tickets and resell them. Like that, they're, they're literally that's the next thing is that not allowing people to you know getting away from paper tickets, getting away from all those things, requiring it to be an ID, um, so that when you buy the ticket, because then the artist could charge more and the consumer would pay less. Obviously. Ticketmaster is not a big fan of that because they make a lot of money on reselling the tickets. <laughs> so so, so they, they, they have the whole, they, you know, they, they own a lot of the infrastructure that's required to do that. So that's a whole nother profit center for them. So, but a lot of artists are talking about wanting to cut that out. Um, and so we'll, cause they would make more money and their, and their fans would pay less. So, um, so we'll see, we'll see what happens there. It's going to be a fight over this next decade. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael, when would you use a stabilized remote head like the SRH360 as opposed to the Trinity? I go ahead, Courtney. Anytime you want to get the camera higher than about six feet off the ground, because uh, if you're going to put it on a crane arm or, uh, uh, you know, a mobile rig, you know, the SR360 is designed to, designed to mount on a head. There's others uh, like that that is like the Scorpio stabilized head. Uh, those are five axis uh, gyro stabilized heads that are used a lot on, uh, you'll see it used in mobile rigs or uh, if you're shooting, uh, uh, you know, uh, chariot races or something where it's on the end of an extended arm and it has to go up or high or over the top of something, something that you're not depending upon the Steadicam operator's little legs running as fast as they can um, to to get the camera to where it needs to be. That's when you'd use a gyro-stabilized head uh, other than the Trinity. Remember the Trinity, uh, the only part of the stabilization in the Trinity is, is its role, I think, uh, and maybe you can remotely control the tilt angle, but everything else is actually controlled by the hand of the operator. It's not uh, motorized in that respect uh, in all axes. It's uh, human-powered in uh, at least three of those axes. So, uh, and, and your feet count as an additional transport axis. And when you look at the price of this, this the price of this uh, SRH360 is $96,000. And that's less than the Trinity, Trinity rig uh, in, in feature set. You can get how expensive that rig is. Um, that, that's that's kind of floating around there. It's 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 an amazing rig. I, I you know and I think that uh, as as Courtney said, um, it's pretty. Uh, the, the airy tools in this area are extremely robust, um, and uh, so it's it's a great solution if you're not going. I feel like though when you start getting close to the this th SRH three sixty, you start thinking about techno cranes, <laughs> you know. Like so, you start that starts to show up on your radar. Next question, Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. Is it true that you can actually still use Google Hangouts as explained in this how-to video? And there's a link there. I don't. I don't know. I. I. I wouldn't. I. Don't, I, I mean, I get people. I, I, yeah, just let it go. It's gone. <laughs> it's you know just it's, it's over. Uh, you know we, we you know I, if even if you could use Google Hangouts, why would you at this point? I mean, you know you have Zoom. 
So, um, which we'll talk about later. I mean, but the, the Google, I mean, I, my entire company was based on doing Google Hangouts for four or five years. So that's all, not all we did, but almost all we did. And, uh, and it was a great moment, but that technology is over, you know, and there's no reason to go back. Um, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael, in a recent SpaceX rocket test, the vibration was so intense that the camera itself shook. Could a Trinity or Trinity-like system compensate for said vibration, or would you use another product? Uh, typically, the problem is, is you wouldn't use something like that. You, you, the problem is weight. So I don't remember what it is, a pound, but it's like $40,000 or $100,000 a pound to put something on a rocket. So the, the, the issue you get into is that you're not going to, you, you, anything you're going to use is going to be built, mission, mission built for this, no extra weight, and only does the one thing that it needs to do to make that actually successful. So I, I doubt it, it would be something that you'd buy off the shelf. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. Well, I think what he was talking about is the ground-based cameras that are shooting the uh, rocket test on the test stand where they're doing a burn test of, I don't know, what is it? 34, I, I didn't see it. Sorry, I didn't 34 see it. of the Raptor uh, engines at one time. And that generates such a low-frequency noise that if you've ever been to a rocket launch or seen a rocket launch from Cape Cape Kennedy uh, with those larger Atlas rockets, the noise is incredible and it just vibrates your chest, and and the sound waves uh, itself of super low frequency noise can vibrate the camera mount at such a high speed that it might be pretty tough to take the shake out of, out because it's vibrating at a pretty fast speed, faster than the slew rate of any kind of uh, uh, motors that can take that out. They could probably take it out uh, with um, you know electronic image stabilization. Yep. Yeah, the, the, um, you need a specialized truck for that. And so uh, we actually had the Blue Origin team on for a second hour years ago. I don't know exactly how long ago, but, um, and they talked about it. And I think that they have very little vibration, but they have a whole truck that's only dedicated to, to shooting uh, the Blue Origin launches. And um, so I think, I don't think SpaceX does. <laughs> so I think that, I think SpaceX, uh, you know, the ironically is taking the less expensive route of how they cover um, their launches than Blue Origin. And so, um, so I think that their coverage is not as good. Now, go ahead, Bill. And Blue Origin's show here, which was fascinating, also introduced us to the term sacrificial camera. They're not really trying to save the camera for the next shoot. Yeah. They put cameras down there and they just know they're going to be vaporized essentially after that launch. Absolutely. Next question. Gordon Lake, Los Angeles, California. What zoom lenses would you put in front of a Blackmagic Ursa Mini Pro 12K? Yeah, so we, we've, we've used a lot of Ursas in production and generally the zoom lenses that we like to use, I mean, there's a lot of different versions of these, but the ones that we tend to use for production are the, um, the Fujinon uh, Cabrillo lenses. So these are, um, there's a couple of them. There's a nine, 90 to nine, nine, I'm sorry, 19 to 90, which is a really nice piece of glass, really expensive. Um, there is the uh, 20 to 120, which is a little less expensive. That's the ones that I used to own. <laughs> there's the 85 uh, and then there's an 85 to 300 and those those Cabrillo lenses work really well. They're, um, they can do Canon mount or PL. It depends on what you buy. And um, those are the ones we've used with many of the Ursas, including the 12K. Um, it's high-quality glass. It's got a servo. Uh, can, we can remote control it through our PTZ heads like a telemetrics, and they've worked really well. Uh, next question. Douglas Carmichael comes up next. I've heard of large concerts using stabilized cameras live. Considering the weight of the Trinity system, wouldn't it be a strain on the operator to wear the system for a full two to three plus hour show? Go ahead, Courtney. 
Yes, it would, and they'd have to change batteries anyway. But uh, they don't wear it for the, they, they, as we saw yesterday, you can take it off and put it on a stand and rest. Uh, so they don't work throughout continuously. If they want to have continuous access to Steadicam, they'll have two operators and they'll ping pong between the two of them. One will rest and the other one will shoot. Um, and uh, so you have to be able to let the operator rest, uh, have periods of rest at times in a two to three hour show because they probably can't handle it uh, more than about 20 minutes or so. Most guys, you know, legs start to get quivery and backs start to, to be uh, painful after uh, a long period of time of holding that weight. So they give them rest, rest periods. So it's done. It's done on a lot of award shows. You'll see all the time in the Academy Awards uh, using a steady cam on stage for entrances and exits off the stage. But then in between that, they're on static cameras, and the steady cam guy has it on the stand resting off stage. Yeah, when you have 10 or 12 cameras, you don't need the steady cam very often, and usually it's coordinated. So it's a rehearsed move, uh, whether it's a concert or, or other things, and they're not really roaming around. Uh, they are, they, no, they have handhelds that oftentimes are roaming around, but the steady cams are usually used, as Courtney outlined, for very specific effects. So that's probably what you're, um, it's, it's usually not as hard as it looks. They don't, I, I, I don't rarely see them running for more than two or three minutes at a time um, at a concert. Uh, to, coming up to over the weekend, uh, we will be talking. Uh, Tomorrow's two hours of Q&A. Uh, I'll be there with uh, the rest of the crew, and we'll be just answering your questions uh, for Saturday. And Sunday is two hours of Q&A. Sunday is usually, we don't broadcast that. So if you haven't seen it before, it's because it's not on YouTube. <laughs> so it's usually a little bit more of an internal conversation about the um, about how things are working here uh, in uh, office hours and answering your questions and usually talking about the industry in a little bit more of a candid way. So, uh, so definitely join us on Sundays if you'd like to be part of that conversation. If you have questions or concerns or comments about office hours, that's the best day to ask them. And we are now starting our second hour, and we're really excited to have the Zoom team back, uh, one of our favorite teams, our favorite guests. We've got Andy Carluccio, uh, Jonathan Cocatello, and Sam Kakaiko here uh, to talk about what's new in Zoom. Welcome, everybody. Well, great to see you all again, and good morning, and thank you for having us. Uh, happy to be here with you. What, what's new? What's new? Yeah, we have a couple of uh, things that I'd like to share today. So um, we'll start by talking about a couple of product-focused announcements, and then I'll kick it over to Sam to share a little bit about an event that we just did that we thought we might want to share some ideas about with the group, and then we're looking forward to answering your questions as well. Um, so first, let me start with app updates. So um, next week, you're going to see updates to all Liminal apps. So that's going to be Zoom OSC on both platforms, Zoom ISO and Zoom Cuts. So with Zoom ISO, uh, it's been a busy summer for us. We've had Zoom ISO 2.1 in beta, and that's where we introduced that SRT feature, more advanced audio tooling, um, uh, this idea of a capture mode where you can choose the consent architecture for being able to get raw data access. So that's going to GA next week, and we're really looking forward to that. And we appreciate everybody who participated in the beta program, and we're excited to share uh, this next update with everybody. Uh, so keep an eye out for that next week. And I know... I know we're pretty excited about the some of the audio stuff that has been improved over over the the Zoom ISO process, and it's making a huge difference for what we're doing here. And uh, we expect it to really make a big difference as we kind of roll forward with um, improving how we how we manage audio based on some of those updates. Yeah, and, the, and there were sort of three parts to the audio update in Zoom ISO. So there was the ability to directly output embedded audio from the outputs tab to Blackmagic SDI devices. So now instead of having to go to advanced audio or creating an aggregate audio device across all of your, uh, for example, your 16 channel SDI outputs that you would then have to kind of group all up and then pick channels and advanced audio. Now it's a simple drop down inside of the outputs menu uh, to send that audio 
directly to the card um, so it can be embedded in the SDI channels. Uh, we introduced this idea of audio submixing inside of the advanced audio tab. So if you wanted to have a mix of everybody who was not on an output or everybody who was on an output, this can be helpful for like monitoring. So if you are hearing program, but you also want to know, is anybody else talking in my meeting as a side channel, you can now create a submix inside of ZoomI so that will give you a mix down of everybody who's not on an output or everybody who is on an output, just so you can more efficiently monitor the meeting. Uh, and then we improved uh, buffer management in the advanced audio system uh, and how it interacts with some of the Apple APIs um, that allows us to improve the way that we manage that uh, when you do speaker switching and things like that. So we're really excited about that. Um, over on the Zoom OSC side, we've introduced that join flow that we uh, shared in the ISO beta earlier this summer. So the ability to join into uh, Zoom events, start your personal meeting, uh, have your display name automatically populate from web portal. All that stuff is now coming over to Zoom OSC and you'll see that next week. We've also added a handful of new OSC commands for other interfaces that you might be interested in using for your events. And then finally, Zoom cuts. Um, again, that's a, a beta that we're in right now. Um, well, it's a, less so of a beta. It's a, it's a fully released product, but it is a preview, so to speak, a technical preview of where we plan to go with our uh, embedding of Apple shortcuts into our client. And uh, we're excited to introduce uh, buttons for or uh, shortcuts for shared content. So if you want to be able to hit a shortcut and share a specific window or share a specific screen or you know control uh, clear annotations or manage anything in our sharing pipeline through an Apple shortcut, uh, that'll be coming in the shortcuts update. How does it define that? Like, so if you have a bunch of how do if if you have a shortcut, how does it like? Because a lot of times, like, like how does it know what to grab onto? When yeah, you, so this is one of the cool things. There's an Apple API that gives you all the screens that you have attached, and then there's also mm -hmm. an API for getting all the different window handles that you have attached. And so what we've done is we've packed that into variables inside of the shortcut. So when you create a shortcut, you can then define any window that you want by just clicking on my available windows and picking one that you want, and that'll be a persistent handle. Uh, or you can do the same thing with screens. Um, you can say, all right, I want this monitor to be the one that is the, when I hit this button on my stream deck, it's going to share this screen immediately. And, and uh, was it and when it does that, does it um, when you say persistent, does it happen between? So if I close everything and then open it back up again, are they going to still have the same IDs? The only thing it, I, I don't know about that is if you like unplug the displays or they somehow like re-enumerate right. themselves, whether that would matter. Mm -hmm. But it should be, I mean, in my experience for like, like the length of my session uh, of the computer being active and everything hooked up to it, it, it has not uh, become an issue. Um, but it's all visual. So you can, um, you're not thinking about IDs and handles. You're just thinking about names of windows. So we're handling all the complexity for you in the share menu. Again, one of the friction points that I find often is, you know, someone said, and I'm going to share my screen. And then we all sit there and we wait and we wait. Right. And then eventually <laughs> something shows up. Now it's a one it's a one button press and boom, you're in your content and then you can hit another button and rip it down. So I think that will reduce that kind of awkward pause when you're waiting for somebody to get their share content together. Well, and the thing that I'm working on also is is the ability to tie Zoom. What this allows me to do is tie, tie Zoom into my external peripherals. So so I'm already using some, you know, whether it's a companion or other, other tools that are going to activate something externally, I could coordinate that with Zoom. So Zoom's going to grab onto something that's going to, you know, share that out. But other things are getting turned on as well. And, and it's not a multi-click 
um, situation. Anymore. And that's the beauty of the whole shortcuts ecosystem is that it ties together all those different programs and operating system things into one macro that you can execute across all your tasks, including the Zoom component. Uh, I should also mention we're adding waiting room controls to Zoom cuts. Uh, both of those two categories of features came from uh, user requests from the office hours community. So we really appreciate everybody participating in this. And this is why we're doing it this way. We want people to be using the shortcuts, giving us feedback, and then we're improving the shortcuts that are inside of the Zoom cuts application with our goal, again, being to, you know, bring those shortcuts across our ecosystem. So we're really, really excited about that. And we appreciate all the participation uh, and keep it coming. And we're looking forward to hearing what you think of this update. Um, so that's liminal apps. Moving over to Zoom events, there were a couple of updates this month. Um, first, you're going to see production studio general availability next week. So we're looking forward to, you know, giving that everybody a chance to check that out. Again, production studio, uh, I don't know that we've actually had a dedicated conversation here about it. So feel free to ask questions if you don't know. But it's a system for basically creating layouts inside of Zoom. So you have control of the layout, the background, the border color, aspect ratios of content, uh, the embedding of like content share with participant video feeds. And it's basically a way to um, produce maybe 80% of what we would do with like a Zoom ISO workflow with 10 to 20% of the effort. So it's just designed to help make that a lot easier and more accessible. It's not a replacement for a full you know, production pipeline by any means. And it's not designed to be that way either. You'll see very clearly that it's designed to bring that marketing professional to the world of a more uh, produced experience and not the other way around. So- uh, and, 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 and which, which, uh, which platforms is it available on? So it's available right now for Zoom events webinars. So you have a Zoom events license and you have a webinar taking place inside of Zoom events and that's how you'll have the entry point to production studio. Um, and certainly, you know, uh, we're continuing to evaluate that as we move forward. But I think that uh, for next week, that's where, that's where it's gonna be. That's where you'll find it. Um, yeah. This is part of session branding is the entry point. Excellent. And then, um, we're introducing a hybrid event companion join. So this is something that if you came to Zoomtopia last year, you got a taste of this experience using Zoom OSC as the way to do it. And what it was, was you, uh, if you were in the in-person session, you felt like you were in the same chat and Q&A lobby as the remote participants. So somebody in the room would have a Zoom you know, device on their phone or on their computer. They'd be able to send a chat message and see chat messages from the virtual audience. And again, we did that by having Zoom OSC in two different webinars and using them to exchange data between each other. But that was such a popular experience that we've now productized that and it's part of Zoom events itself. So now instead of actually joining two different sessions, the people who are in the room who are, who are basically registered as in-person attendees of a hybrid event, they will receive a uh, kind of a text only experience. So they won't, they, their devices won't receive audio and video so that you won't get feedback in the room and you won't be sending all that bandwidth to those devices. Uh, but they will be able to participate in the common Q&A and chat pool. So it's basically a way, of, we call this companion join. It's just a kind of a, the interactivity component of Zoom without the audio video component. And that way you have one audience, regardless of whether they're remote or whether they're on site. And so I look forward to checking that out more. And and for our for our office hours viewers, um, that's exactly what Makana does in the phone app. So this is like a Zoom version of a of what we would call the light, the light version of, of Makana. Gotcha. With and then, um, finally, you can be able to use um, Zoom cloud files for Playout and Simulive. So if you have externally produced some piece of content, you'll be able to uh, point Simulive to that for Playout. So if it's in your Zoom cloud, it can then be discovered through Simulive. And there's details on the change log about how to use this, but um, that's the other piece of the Zoom event. Is that, is, that a, is that something that you queue up or is it something that you think of as an event for the Simulive? 
it's how you set up the session. Uh, so mm-hmm. basically it's you with Simulive, the idea, right, is that you have some content, you're playing it out versus live streaming it. So you have the synchronicity of the audience is watching something being played out. And I think the what I always recommend with Simulive is use that as an opportunity to get more engaged with the audience versus like letting it just like push it out and let it happen. If you're if you're running a smaller team or you had you couldn't align everybody's schedule, you wanted that async video, but you wanted everybody to be collected together what you should then do as a producer is then get really involved in the comments and really involved in the chat because you're not worried about pressing buttons on, you know, how to produce the event, so to speak. So, um, but now you can take a little more production value into those sessions and push them out that way. And how does the transition in that session go from being live, live to simulive back to live, live? It's no, a dedicated it's session. So it's a simulive session. So the entire, and remember the way Zoom events is set up is that there are sessions nested inside of the event. So when you want to move from live, live to simulive, you're simply moving between sessions in your itinerary for the show. Um, so there might and so be- for, And yeah. so for the user, would they have a transition moment or would they just would it just go from one thing to the next? It's just like you had one meeting end and another webinar begin and inside of uh, Zoom events, you have your itinerary to figure out what events you're going to in the course of a day. So okay. some sessions are simulive and it's, just, it's end-to-end to play out. It's not like an insert into a, a event that's taking place. Um, I wanted to mention as well that our, so now putting Zoom events aside for a moment, um, we announced at Zoomtopia last year, a live streaming Zoom app. That is now released as of yesterday. So it's coming out into beta. Again, the key points about this are the ability to stream to multiple platforms simultaneously, the ability to OAuth into those streaming platforms and get social interaction back into the client. So if I write a comment on YouTube, that comment shows up inside of the streaming app. So I just have one interface in front of me and I can monitor the interaction across all of my different platforms that I'm sending to. Um, And so we look forward to having people check that out and try it. Um, And again, right now it supports Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. Uh, There are some features that are listed as uh, coming soon. Um, So it's a beta, it's an early look, but definitely check it out. Um, When you're just trying to, um, you know, again, it's not, it's not going to replace, you know, a full production pipeline, but when you're just trying to get that, what's happening inside of the session, as we give you more and more tools to make things that happen inside of Zoom, uh, have more production value, this now adds on to that. So everything can take place inside of the client and you can push that out to those different platforms. And if it's one click away, you know, being part of the show. And again, I think that the, the, from a strategic value perspective, it's about getting multi-person conversations, which we can do in Zoom outside of the platform. So without having to pull in the full production pipeline, we can have that conversation and engage our audience with that reach. So it's designed to really improve from an interaction perspective, the way that you handle streaming conversations like this one with um, a more in-client approach to how to do it. And do you, does it um, ID the source of each one of these? So you, you'll see that these comments are coming in from Twitch. This one comes in, this is coming from YouTube. This comes into Facebook. Yeah, so we have a couple different things there. So we have, you can filter by platform. So if you just want to see the YouTube comments, you can just go to the YouTube tab and you'll see, you know, the chat messages come in. If it's a super chat, it'll, you know, call itself out in a different way. Uh, or you can go to an all feed, in which case the platform will be tagged on every message as it comes up together. So that's something that you can look at. Um, and then finally, I wanted to toss it over to Sam, maybe for a quick minute, talk about uh, our Perspectives Analyst event and how we combined Zoom ISO and Production Studio together uh, to produce that experience. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Um, so Perspectives it is our uh, annual analyst event. It's one of the biggest events we do each year, uh, or most important to the company. Actually, that was something our, our CEO mentioned in the internal meeting right after, is that it is past Zoomtopia, the next biggest, most important event for us. 
Uh, and so we obviously try to bring the latest and greatest and kind of show all of the analysts uh, community out there, here's what we're doing, here is our product uh, kind of natively. And so with Production Studio coming out, uh, like Andy said, should be GA this week, uh, we wanted to make sure that we were showcasing that as much as possible. And so what we did um, was, it's a fully uh, hybrid event. So we have people in the room with our stage in uh, the Bay Area, with our presenters on that stage, our audience is on that stage or in that room. And then we have our virtual audience and of course our virtual presenters as well. We had several virtual panels, virtual presenters coming in. Uh, and I think I actually talked to you guys about this last year where we showed you, we had like a, the stage with the three portrait monitors to the left. You also saw it at Zoomtopia. You'll see it again this year. It's something that we like as a stage design a lot to give that sort of physical presence to those virtual presenters. Uh, so we did that again. Um, but for the virtual audience, the experience they saw was completely driven by production studio natively. And the way that works uh, with the way we set it up is that we took all of our cameras, we had four different cameras in the room, we got to use the those uh, the Sony uh, FR7s, which was really exciting and fun to, to get to play with them. Uh, they are really awesome cameras. Uh, so we got to use them as our four cameras in the room, one man, three PTZs, switch that down and then hand zoom a camera. So zoom thinks I'm a participant. I have a camera. I have a mic. I have shared content. We handed it a camera feed, a mic feed of just our mics in the room, and then a content feed, which we brought in uh, in zoom. If you go to share screen advanced, you can share content from second camera. And so we use that to share it. Uh, based, it was actually coming from an NDI feed in that we landed in OBS and then brought in there through that virtual camera. That way we could bring the audio to share computer sound as well. Now what this meant is that our camera feed was going to zoom via camera. Our mic feed was coming to zoom via mic. Our content audio feed, all of our music, all of that was coming in through the content channel. That allows Zoom to actually do the processing that it wants to do the way it wants to do it and understand what's where and how it should treat it. Uh, what this meant is we did not use original sound. I know I'm going to shock everybody there real quick. No original sound used on this show because we only had mic audio coming in through the mic channel. So we let Zoom do its thing. It's echo cancellation. It's audio processing. Do what it wanted to do. And that also meant that our music was able to come in through that content channel. And if I have a remote... Like typically... If I'm doing a show and I mix my mic audio and my music audio together, that's my mix. I turn on original sound, Zoom doesn't touch it, and I can do my thing. But if I have a remote person talk over, let's say, a walk-on or, or an underscore music or something like that, sometimes they can try to fight a little bit because all it knows is, hey, I've got two people talking. Putting that music in the content channel means that Zoom is able to respect it and leave it where it should be and not treat it as a conflicting so, participant. So to kind of underline that, so that if oh. you're doing it through a share, and this is the advanced share, share through a second camera with the music, um, mm -hmm. things that you share into this you can have will not be affected by the auto, you know, basically the um, auto mixer, right? So they're, they will keep going no matter what you say over top of them because it's not designed to be interacted with. Is that, is that correct? Exactly, which allows like a lot better underscoring. A again, if we mix premix our audio, we can do whatever we want. But for my remote participants who aren't part of my mix, they're just coming in through Zoom's auto mixer. It allows Zoom to understand what everything should be and treat it correctly. And this was the first show we've been able to do that on to this level. And it was really 
really cool to see uh, because we basically took our room as a single participant, all of our virtual participants, and just treated them as if nothing was in person at all from the virtual side of the experience, that production studio side. Then within the room, we uh, used ZoomISO. And so basically, what we the in-room experience had to completely be built within that room. So my people on the stage, they see them on the stage. My music, they hear them from the audio board at the back of the room. My virtual presenters come in and ZoomISO pulls them out as an individual feed with isolated audio, hands it to my audio guy as another channel as if it was someone on their own lav mic, hands it up to my screen next to the stage there so we can see it. And uh, because we're using isolated audio in Zoom ISO, and because we're not using original sound, Zoom's echo cancellation is able to handle everything for us. So we are doing a mix minus. We're not sending that remote presenter directly back, but that remote presenter audio coming out into the room, getting picked up in a lav mic, getting picked up in an audience mic, whatnot. Zoom's echo cancellation is able to remove it, and it actually worked really well. Do you have any sensitivity to when that stops working based on if you're delaying audio to match the video? Is there a point where that stops being effective? There will be a point. Um, We ended up... So our actual signal path there was actually pretty slow because we were actually coming out Zoom ISO, NDI over to vMix, which is what was driving our portrait screens. Mm -hmm. And then we actually ended up having to go NDI to an NC1 to break it out into SDI to get to our actual in-room displays. So we had a couple NDI hops, a lot of latency just within our room. Mm -hmm. Um, We don't have to consider the Zoom latency or the actual transmission because that's hitting us at the same time. But we do have to consider that. Um, So we actually ended up adding 400 milliseconds Hmm. of delay significant delay to yeah. bring that audio back in sync and echo cancellation still didn't slip once throughout the show. Yeah, that's usually where we have trouble is when when you start, everything's fine if you just t- turn it on. But in, in other platforms and even Zoom in the past, we would have some issues where uh, if you turn that delay up a little bit, that matching stops working and suddenly it's just full volume into the, you know, in and out of the system. Right. Eventually it says, hey, this thing is happening so much later, it can't possibly be the same sound. Right, you know? exactly. <laughs> but, but at 400 milliseconds of delay, which is that's, pretty... That's great pretty significant. Um, it was still holding it. And like I said, didn't slip once. That's awesome. Um, so yeah, that was, it was, uh, the first show of that kind. And I can actually say it because I know no one else has access to production studio yet. So that was <laughs> the very first in the world show designed like that with production studio doing the virtual event entirely in room, completely handling itself with zoom ISO and bringing out to those physical screens in the room, separate audio paths, Mics, no original sound, mics into the mic channel, music and content into the content channel. Uh, and it was it was really exciting to see it all kind of come together and work the way it should. And I think that I think that that the what you're talking about with the computer audio input um, is something that is a very underused feature. I know I'm kind of fixated on that, but I think I, I talk to a lot of people about that and they don't know that it's there. You know, like it's just it's like a really easy ad to just add production quality audio into something and not have it going up and down with whatever you 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 want to have there. So I think it's a really important takeaway. Yep. Now, how did the production studio, what were you doing with production studio that augmented it, you know, in addition to the hybrid, the hybrid solution? Yeah. So here's where I'll go ahead and say that production studio is not better than I could have done in a production system. Like Mm -hmm. Andy said, production studio lets us get 80% of what we could do. But for us, it was really important for us to show them, here's what production studio can do. Uh, And there's also the fact that in many other shows, 
what production studio can do and how easily it can do it can have a huge value at all levels of, or not all levels of production, right? 80 plus percent levels of production. Um, so production studio was able to give us a lot of ability to kind of move around and keep everybody on, on an even playing field between my virtual audiences and my interim audiences. Right. Uh, like Andy said, it can give you aspect ratios, borders, uh, different wallpapers on a scene by scene basis. And if you really just think of production studio as layout control, that's what it is. Right. One thing that I've said a lot is that a event particular to zoom, but an event in general, if you take a screenshot of it, you take a bunch of screenshots of it. That doesn't give you a good picture of what it was. How we get from screenshot A to screenshot B, that transition, that time, that that flow is what an event is. It's, it's not. A, it's, it's the, the energy. Parts. And this, you yeah. know, it's the you know, we talk about that all the time of just not wanting to have these pauses because that saps the energy out of the system. Um, and and you know, being and I, you know, I know. My version is very complicated because I have like, when I do presentations, I have like four or five computers and they're all running through a switcher and I'm all tapping it. But the big thing I, I have is I want to avoid any of those pauses, like any of those stops and starts. Yeah. Yeah. And so Production Studio lets you have all of your scenes built up, pull them into preview, make adjustments or swaps live on the fly because we understand that the show doesn't go exactly how they told you it would and you can't plan for everything necessarily you can't build every single option layout of who would be where so you can easily drag and drop swap people out into those different things mm -hmm. and then it's in preview take it live you can even take a scene that is live pull it in a preview make adjustments to who's in what box and then take it live again yeah, uh, i'll be real I'd be really interested to see if it gets into a wider distribution. I think part of the problem is, is that a lot of us here just haven't seen production studio because it kind of lives in a space that we don't, that we don't, we don't see very often. So, so the, um, so it's, it's really, it sounds, it sounds pretty useful though. Yeah. And well, you haven't seen it yet either because we've done some, some demos of it. We've done some events. I've done two tech talks about it, but uh, it isn't released yet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so next week you'll start really seeing it. And now this is one where um, there Zoom events it has so many features, but like you said, a lot of them don't necessarily apply. Of you know, I don't, I don't need Zoom events because I need to do one session well, really and well. I think, I think what's interesting is, is that the the because I mean, this will be the interesting thing of this whole puzzle when you talk about webinar and Zoom events and so on and so forth, is that the Zoom ISO production pipeline is largely built around meetings. <laughs> you know, so so we so you know a lot of us have all kind of collated around we, like this this show used to be on webinar now it's on meetings because we because we're manipulating all those things. So I think that that's where production studio is going to be interesting is to see how it impacts uh, you know events again and because most of us that do this immediately just drop everybody into meetings, you know, because we don't we don't um, interact with the other platforms anymore because so it's an interesting dichotomy of using that because it's been one of those things that we haven't that a lot of us kind of moved away from those because we because we had the tools that we needed in hardware you know right. so or in, or in software so well i think the, the biggest difference is it does start with where is your audience if your audience right. is in zoom then they're in a webinar and then production studio is going to make sense if your audience isn't in zoom production right. studio is probably I think you could use it just to produce your view and stream it out somewhere. You definitely right. can, but I don't know if that necessarily makes sense for your flow, especially. No, if I think I think this, flow. again, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that this is this is kind of bringing a lot of the stuff that a lot of us have been doing in meetings and so on and so forth back to these other platforms where it does make a lot of sense. Right. You know, the, you know, to, the to biggest that thing that Production Studio does that has never existed before, does not exist in any other way, is right now. If I'm using full production, I'm using Zoom ISO. 
I have to have a talent meeting, pull my feeds out, mix them together and put them somewhere else. Production studio is the one and only way to produce the look and feel of an event with my speakers and my audience in the same thing. They're both in that native webinar together. And there's some behind the scenes magic in how that works that there is not an alternative to. There is no other way to do that. And there's so many things that come along with that where I don't have to worry about them joining the wrong link or the chats are separate and they can't see them or the Q&A, all the other things that they start to get access to that are all brought to that one place. And that's actually a, a way bigger deal than I can do a border color. <laughs> right, right, right. No, absolutely. And Excellent. Andy, I saw you starting to unmute, and I, I think that was yeah, probably... Yeah, we were all I was, all was just going to say, look at it, you know, I would look at it from a technology perspective as well. This is the ability, as Sam just said, to be able to combine multiple video feeds into something within Zoom's ecosystem itself. And, you know, we just talked about um, uh, last time we were on how we can now output multi-pin and gallery view from NDI and Zoom rooms. Right. You're seeing a theme here. Zoom now has the ability to combine its own video feeds into a single buffer that it can send somewhere. That's a net new capability that the platform hasn't had in the past. And right. it's a tool in your tool belt, even as you are thinking about these larger production chains to know that, hey, now Zoom has a way that it can composite multiple video feeds together. And that's showing up in production studio. It's also showing up in other areas. So I get excited from about production studio from a technology perspective about what it means that Zoom can now do, that it has the ability to do things like custom layouts and compositing you know, what can we do with those tools in other areas is something that I'm looking into and excited about. Well, and I think for a lot of us, because a lot of us watching are, are people who do, do this kind of production in Zoom. And then of course, there's always going to be this like, well, what about, what am I doing now? You know, but the issue is, is that the great thing, because it's doing 80%, that other 20%, you know, the thing is, is that you have partners that are going to start doing something more complex than just doing a meeting or just doing a webinar. And they're very, very quickly going to realize that they need, they want this other thing. Like once they open that door and they start going down more complex events, it, it, it potentially opens up a lot of opportunity to further customize it. Then of course, transitioning to ISO and, and OSC and building much more complex events. I'll also point out that like, I feel like so much about, you know, you, know, we, we, you talked about an event being the energy and the flow. Mm -hmm. So much of running a good event and scene switching is the intuition around what scene should I go to when? Where do I move between that two up and that one up and the one up with content and what do I do there? And that still like, very much exists in production studio. That's what it's about. And so while some people are going to look at it and go, well, I'm going to just have my content's always on the screen and it's this person talking and then that person and then that person. But you can do a lot more than that. And I think even within this group, there are, I think there's a need for those producers to have that intuition and that skill set yeah. with the simpler tool as well. Yeah, and I think I think you're right. And I think that people will do a lot of really interesting things with those puzzles. When we saw all these cameras become way more available, you know, we suddenly end up with a lot more creativity. I mean, we saw this with Photoshop. You know, like we, you know, before Photoshop, there was Cytex, you know, like, you know, and it was $80,000 a unit. And there were, you had to, you spent two years in training and you got to use it. And then people like me were an intern uh, with, uh, you know, an intern learning this thing called Photoshop that no one had ever seen before. And um, trying to figure it out. And we were suddenly able to do a whole bunch of other things. Now, a lot of us came back to some traditional views, but there was a lot of experimentation. And I think that's what we're going to see a lot more of here is people thinking about it. And and having those tools are, you know, changes the way, I, I think it's exciting that we can start changing the way events happen because the way we do events 
is largely from the constraints that are connected to those events. You know, so that, you know, like we, the way we build physical events is largely built around the constraint of getting people in there and how long does it take to fill the room and how do we interact with them? And, you know, people talk too long in front of the mics, which is what I complain about all the time. So there's all these, these things that, that we constrain how we do the events. And as we start to get more of these tools available to more people, we'll hopefully start to see more creative ways of, of interacting with other people. So it's exciting. Um, anything else before we jump into the question? They're stacking up. See what they got. <laughs> all right. All right. Let's go. First, uh, let's go to the first question. First question comes from Josh Kaufman in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. From an average to advanced producer's perspective, what would be a short list of Zoom configuration settings that should be set on the web portal prior to the event's start? Go ahead, Andy. Uh, Sam and I were talking about this a little earlier. I want his thoughts as well. But I think what I'll just say at the beginning here is familiarize yourself with web portal. I think that's one thing that um, it continues to evolve and you might have looked at it maybe six months ago and not realize there's a, a feature toggle there that you really need. And so refresh yourself with every event, go back through the web portal, top to bottom, in meeting, in meeting advanced, look at what those settings are. Every event I think is gonna have different needs. Do you want the captions? Do you need the translations? Do you need the recording capabilities, right? And just make sure you arm the right settings as you go through, but take some time if you're doing this regularly to go back in and, and refresh yourself about what those settings are, because the more you know about Web Portal, uh, the more you know about what features you can use to help you build your event. Next question. Yeah. Oh, 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 sorry. Sorry, I was just going to say that I think for me, it's less of a running list of these are the four things I need to check and more I do frequently just straight go to the portal, start at the top and just go line by line and and think about each one. I would also say when it comes to the features and, and things like that, I try to keep an approach of defaulting to on. I, I want everything. I want captions. I want all the accessibility options. I want all the interactivity options. Start with them on unless I know I need them off. Use Take advantage of everything. Next question. Eric Hertz in Hartford, Connecticut. Up next, I would like to be able to view Zoom webinar questions during the event in a separate web client. Will you be providing software development kit access for this in the future? Go ahead, Jonathan. Uh, simple answer is yes. Uh, we do have access to those APIs within our uh, SDKs. Um, so go ahead and try those out and you should be able to pull not just the, uh, the the question text itself, but other data such as the number of upvotes, who asked the question, uh, details such as that. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. What are the hardware and system requirements for Production Studio and how do we sign up for the beta? Go ahead, Jonathan. So let me pull my notes here and, and specifically mention the, the system requirements. Um, so for the host, hosting production studio, you need to have on Apple either an M1 or M2 uh, or better system um, and memory of at least eight gigabytes. Um, if you're on PC for the host, you need to have an Intel CPU, eight core i7 or better, um, and then memory of at least eight gigabytes. That's what we recommend. Um, for Zoom version, we recommend uh, for the host, Minimum version of 5.15.10. Um, that's the version that will be released next week. So make sure you're on the latest version to test. And for all attendees, they need 5.13.0 or higher. Next question. Peter Moore, Auckland, New Zealand. What changes are there coming up for the stereo and other audio format feeds for musicians? And will these changes make their way to Linux? Uh, go ahead, Andy. I think this might be in reference to the live performance audio that we introduced, um, which is currently a beta feature of our client. And the focus of live performance audio is uh, to reduce the latency. 
um, so that musicians could play together through Zoom, which has sort of been a dream, I think, for many groups, uh, particularly during the pandemic. Oh, how do we get together and have a jam session? I've seen a couple of members of the community go out and do this, and it's actually been quite interesting to see the results. Um, I saw David Paston playing guitar with somebody on the keys, and it was it was actually quite cool to watch it come together. Um, I can't speak to our Linux client. I'm, not, I'm less familiar with what options appear there, but I definitely would recommend checking it out and seeing if it will make a difference for the type of work you're doing. Even, you know, I've been curious about, does it make a noticeable difference for like a conversation, a low latency conversation? Does that give you sort of an emotional benefit to how we interact with each other? Maybe that's something interesting to check out. Uh, but yeah, it's a cool feature. I would definitely dive in. Sam, and it's and significantly less. So you're talking about dropping from maybe 150 milliseconds to 50 to 75 milliseconds. Is that about right? I think even less than that. I'm not going to quote yeah. a number, but I'm pretty sure I. I'm being conservative. I know. I pretty sure. It, it, <laughs> you know, it's it's the latency is so low that it's going to matter your audio interface chain coming into it. Yeah, yeah <laughs> like that absolutely. latency is well, important. Yeah, uh, and I work. Yeah, absolutely. And um, it, I, and I do think that that is it's required for for artists, right? I mean, to be able to, you have to really get to razor sharp. Absolutely. I, I was going to say in, in testing the feature, uh, I, I was testing it with one of my specialists when it first came out and um, we did not like it just talking to each other on it because you have to be, I mean, you have to be on headphones because it's, it's doing no processing. It is taking all zoom processing out. So no echo cancellation, no anything. Yep. Um, and we, we didn't find it from a human experience perspective better for human conversation rather we found it awkward how much noise we were hearing and the, the right. strange clarity in the mics and in the signal path without all the processing and right. we were much more comfortable when we turned regular back on yeah it's interesting because I, I work in extremely low latency um events and, and design and we do f find that once you if you get over those things of course we're using really professional you know like everything is everybody's on headphones and everybody's tied in that we do find that there's some there's a snappiness to it um that we that we get that we don't get when we um when we have a regular call like so for instance a lot of times if we're recording a podcast uh, we do we record a podcast every week in fact i'll be doing one later today on zoom and um we often go through and we literally edit out the space between when our local person who's doing it and the person who's responding we cut all those gaps out and those that because that gap is a round trip gap mm -hmm. and we are looking at using, you know, and so we hear this and it makes the person on the other side sounds smarter. <laughs> you know, like they just, they're, they're just, they're, cause they're hitting it a little harder. And, um, and so we, uh, we found that that did make a difference to the overall experience of the, of how the person listens to it. Um, and so, so we are, seriously considering the problem really is is that as you said there's not a lot of processing so if we're sending these mics out to people i think it'd be good for people who are doing podcasts who are there but it's if you send it out to average people they can't there's now no processing and that's that's papering over the fact that they've got a bad room and a bad mic and they don't know how to use them and right you definitely need the best the best chain you can have coming in so that the processing isn't needed right. uh, from a technical level what it kind of does is it takes up to six people and almost puts them in their own little audio conference with each other yeah. where the audio is out of sync with the video because it's going so fast right and they're kind of like watching the regular call while they have this low latency audio call together and then it takes that call and ports it to everybody else with the same latency. So like if I click low latency for me, my audience doesn't get that faster. Right. It's only me and the pe other people that have that low latency going on that are participating in that little side convo and then going to everyone else. Next question. 
Bill Mew in Tunbridge Wells, UK. If a paid Zoom business pro account with a minimum of 10 users is needed to use Zoom ISO, then can a group of freelancers share a pro business account? Would some of the Office Hours listeners like to club together to get one? (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead, Andy. Yeah, so what I can say to this is uh, a couple different pieces to the question here, right? So let me just clarify. um, To use Zoom ISO, there isn't a Zoom license type that's required to activate the program and log it into sessions. So whatever account you sign into it, Zoom ISO just inherits the capability of that account. And it can also join as a guest to a session that's hosted by another account. So for example, if you're producing an event for an organization and that organization is a business user, for you to produce an event for them, you do not also have to be a business user in order to utilize 1080p, for example. So you can join into their account through Zoom ISO. You don't have to separately hold that. Um, The pro business distinction, again, just to sort of restate this, um, if you have a any paid Zoom uh, account level, pro and higher, you can get 720p by sending in a support ticket request. If you have business and higher, you can submit a request for 1080p. Um, I, but that does not preclude the ability to use the tools, whether, you know, what level of account you have and what resolution profile is set on the account level may not even have bearing on whether Zoom ISO is able to output that resolution. For example, if you're joining, like I said, cross account, What matters is what account is the meeting hosted on, not what account did I sign into Zoom ISO with. So just to be clear, that's it works in a slightly different way. And then, um, yeah, I I don't want to comment on um, shared licenses. The the terms have um, kind of specific language around that. So I would just be careful about that. Also, this is an easy way to get scammed. (laughs) To be honest, there's a lot of uh, things that I've seen online about like, oh, you know, pay me the money and I'll give you the license, you know, be careful about this stuff. Uh, Read up about it, make sure to review the terms and make sure that, you know, um, you don't cross into like resale and stuff like that. That's stuff that you want to be careful about. Next question. Peter Belbin, Houston, Texas. Does Zoom have a set of documented sample use case scenarios that provide customers with examples of how the various individual tools can be combined to achieve great results? Is there anything specific for that? I think it's mostly Uh, good. I was going to mention this one for Sam because I think that, um, you know, customer scenarios, this is an area where event services plays a large role. And using these tools and trying to provide guidance about the art of the possible, so to speak. So maybe Sam, I know you just did a case study with one of our larger customers about how they produced an event and things like that um, that we just put up on LinkedIn. I, you know, I think that's the kind of example that maybe we're looking for here. Yeah, and so the one you're referencing there is our our video we just posted about the Glassdoor event. Though I would say it doesn't get technical enough to to probably answer this. Um, I think what you do see though is you see us do frequent events and webinars. Like I said, I've done two tech talks on production studio. Uh, we always do an event series after Symptopia talking about the setups on that where we go very in depth. Uh, this one was this, the one this year was a three part series where we talked about like the zoom event setup, the technical production around the hybrid experience, cameras, speakers, displays in the room, and then the, uh, the engagement tools that Jonathan and team worked on the chat bots and that companion join and how we accomplish those things. And I think you'll see us continue to do that. Um, right now we are working on a video series based on that perspectives event. I just mentioned where I'll be showing all the technical setup there. I, we walked around with a camera on a gimbal backstage showing all the different pieces and what's going on. And, and we'll be releasing that soon, but definitely just check out our, our events page to see the different upcoming events we have with our team. Next question. 
Eric Lauderdale, up next, I'm the co-host of a webinar. What tool in Zoom should I be using in order to just spotlight, add spotlight, and replace spotlight? Go ahead, Andy. Well, it depends a little bit about your workflow. But if it were me, I think the simplest entry point now is to use Zoom cuts. So you could you have the uh, spotlight controls as a shortcut. And if you know who you want to work on ahead of time, you can punch in their detail into the shortcut and then execute it that way. Or if you're not sure, you can uh, have a pop-up generated by your shortcut that shows you all the people and you can pick the ones you want. When you get past shortcuts, when you kind of outgrow that, if your workflow doesn't accommodate that, you need to do something more. That's where I would start looking at Zoom OSC and Companion. We have this amazing Companion module that allows you to see the names of the participants on your stream deck, select them, group them, spotlight them, manage it all directly from that environment. So I would start with the Zoom cuts and see if that uh, solves your problem and gets you through what you need to do. And if you find that you outgrow that, that's where Zoom OSC comes in and you can begin to use the spotlighting commands and the Stream Deck and companion integrations to take it to the next step. Next question. Douglas Carmichael up next. Could you see Zoom natively hosting a Zoom ISO test meeting like we had in After Hours so that new users can experiment on their own? Go ahead, Andy. I think in order to make a test session like this valuable, you have to have a certain level of trust among the members so that you can turn on the features that they want to actually test with. And that I think was sort of the, um, what was great about the after hour session, what's great about things like Zoom Test Kitchen is that there's accountability among the members, right? So like you can turn on the settings and there's a certain amount of trust. I think to do it at a wide scale, it becomes tricky because now you have to moderate it and you have to, you have to add all these steps in order to be able to control for that. Um, certainly do think it's valuable to have access to the video feeds and all of that. But I do think that to get the most out of it, you, you, it, this is where community really makes sense. And, you know, that level of accountability among the members, I think is an important part of getting all the features turned on. Yeah, and I, we're looking at reviving that in the fall. So stay tuned. <laughs> so, um, so I think that we should, hopefully by October, we should have it back up. Uh, next question. Eric Hertz, Hartford, Connecticut. It seems like Zoom has replaced webcasting platforms for large corporate meetings. Are there any remaining use cases where a webcasting service makes more sense to use instead of Zoom? Go ahead, Andy. Well, a couple of things that I think are interesting about Zoom, and this is a side that we don't get to talk about very much, so I appreciate the question, um, is our Zoom event, uh, our, sorry, our Zoom mesh and our Zoom node. So if you're thinking about like on-premise webcasting, you can actually deploy Zoom in a largely on-premise way using a Zoom node. The other thing that you can do is if you're in a, a hybrid type of webcasting situation where you have people who are in your building and you have people who are remotely and therefore you're going to host your meeting outside of your on-prem solution, Zoom Mesh comes in there. And Zoom Mesh basically allows you to uh, nominate a couple of head nodes that will pull the video in from the cloud and then distribute that within your corporate network so that you don't have every single device reaching out to the cloud to pull all those video feeds in. So I, I do think that Zoom has a uh, very powerful set of tools in this area that you can use for these sort of like on-premise deployments, webcasty, you know, management of uh, of those feeds. So uh, it, there, there's more to it than just like the webinar production tools. There actually are things that speak to the you know actual technical deployment stack for how you would manage this in an enterprise context. Next question. Peter Belbin, Houston, Texas. The ability to see comments from multiple social media sources seems great using the multi-target streaming tool. Is there a way to curate the questions and or feedback that other participants see? Go ahead, Andy. My understanding is that there are some basic moderation tools that are available provided that you have the right role. Um, so I, I have to double check exactly because the, the question speaks to, you know, what participants see. Right now, the only the person who is running the streaming app 
sees the comments from those third-party platforms for themselves. So they, it's up to them to choose where they want to introduce those into the conversation. It's not like popping up on screen or something like that. Now, if your question was for those people who are on those platforms, who are seeing the messages of the other people on that platform, it is my understanding that there is some moderation control that you can do some basic things. I think deleting messages is one of them or flagging them. Uh, there's also YouTube has this concept of like a manager for the chat that you can you can see in the chat scroll like a little wrench next to those key players who can moderate there and that's represented through the streaming app as well but of course as you get to play with it if you have additional feedback about how that workflow can be imp improved please let us know next question paul wallace austin texas when i look at the zoom cuts apps accessing content in this office hours meeting it says approved by two people what's the significance of that go dandy so we call this the active app notifier. And what it does is it shows you what uh, marketplace integrations are being used in the session. So when somebody joins with Zoom ISO or Zoom OSC or Zoom cuts, the active app notifier goes off and it shows you a link to the marketplace listing where you can read more about what that integration does. And it shows you a list of all the people in the meeting who are using that integration. This is because when you install and sign into an app like this, you approve it by adding it to your account. And if you'd like to learn about the account, uh, basically who is doing that, who is bringing in these tools into your session, the active app notifier gives you a nice summary of all those integrations that are available, shows you who's running them, and it also gives you a link where you can find out more information from the Zoom app marketplace. Next question. Peter Moore in Auckland, New Zealand. Do I have to have a paid Zoom Pro or business account uh, in order to be able to develop solutions using Zoom OSC and the Zoom software development kit? Or can I tinker at home? Is there a dev test public kind of environment or vagrant Docker container that I can download? Go ahead, Jonathan. So no, you do not need a uh, paid pro or enterprise account to be able to develop using our SDKs. Um, you just need a regular Zoom account to be able to work with those. A distinction I want to make as well is that Zoom OSC is not one of our developer SDKs. Uh, it is a separate client, um, and it is a great way to integrate if you want to just use the OSC protocol for basic integrations, but it is not one of our SDKs. Next question. Uh, Stefan Fischer in Würzburg, Germany. Zoom licenses are now available from German Telcom, and all the traffic takes place on German servers. This solves all of our German D uh, GDPR problems. Would a move to the other licenses affect the use of liminal products? Go ahead, Andy. It's a good question. Um, I My understanding is that, so this is uh, with regards to something called Zoom X, which is a uh, collaboration between Zoom and Deutsche Telekom to do basically what was uh, described there about having the um, the calls hosted by this telecom provider, but using the Zoom infrastructure. Um, I I don't want to. Uh, I would I would try it and see what you get, but I also think that the it matters where the call is hosted, not where the client is joining from. Is typically the way that Zoom works, right? It's it's you know the meeting is hosted somewhere, and then everything connects to that. So. If the session is hosted on ZoomX platform, I don't know if there's any restrictions that are imposed on what clients can join that and where those clients are located. So I'm not sure. I'd have to test. But um, it, it would seem to me that it would not matter where the session was hosted. But I could be wrong about that. There are additional restrictions for ZoomX. So uh, I, I don't want to misspeak about that. Next question. Eric Hertz, Hartford, Connecticut. Tell us about some of your largest Zoom webinars for corporate communications. How many attendees are now joining from their offices rather than from home? Go ahead, Andy. Well, one thing, again, I'll say about this is that the the situation where we have people 
joining from the offices is why we created Zoom Mesh and, and the Node solution. It's to be able to reduce the load on the corporate infrastructure while Zoom is being deployed to pull video feeds into an office building or something like that. So uh, it certainly is part of the, the Zoom portfolio is solutions that allow us to manage you know, participants on-prem. And that, again, is our, is our Zoom Mesh solution that helps us do that. Um, so I hope that's helpful. Yeah, and, and to really underline the importance of this, uh, the I just read an article this morning about it. They said that basically the work from home, work from uh, work, you know, the going return to office has flatlined. Like it's just like this is pretty much where we're at. So it, it doesn't seem like a lot of people are coming in. More people are coming into the office. It doesn't seem like more people are leaving the office. We're kind of in this stability area for the moment. Um, and so it's really important to figure out how all these, these hybrid um, solutions uh, work. Next question. Mark Steele in Orlando, Florida, starts with, at the risk of kicking the dead horse, why can't Zoom restore the setting for advanced users to always enable original sound like it was previous to last November? Just add an advanced menu under the original sound option, he says. Go ahead, Andy. Yeah, so I'll refer to my comments from January as to the reasoning for the setting change. So go back and check out the Office Hours episode that we did then. Uh, long story short, um, too many people using original sound without the setup to be able to actually manage Echo. Uh, I know even in my own... Um, situation, I tend to use Zoom optimized audio uh, just because I'm in 60 hours of meetings a day and all the other things that would have to be added in order to make that uh, comfortable would be difficult. Um, uh, but um, there are some things that you can do to help make this easier for yourself. So last week, I tried this out. I, um, I downloaded the uh, Zoom installer for IT admins, which is um, a, if you go to the Zoom downloads page, the top right corner, there's an icon that you can click and you can download this installer. It's the full installer. And what you can do, and it took me all of five minutes to do this, is when you install it, you set a, a setting that says, always have original sound on for this computer. Now, that computer will always use original sound by default on in all the sessions that takes place. So I was advising somebody who said, hey, I have a studio and it's really annoying to have to be able to turn this setting on when I go between all these different sessions. And I said, well, that studio is not you know, getting picked up and going on the road with you. So because that's 100% of the time, the way you want Zoom configured, let's install it with the enterprise installer and pre-configure this setting and it works perfectly for them now. Um, and they can always rerun the installer and turn the setting off if they really needed to. But what I would say is that if you are um, if you're in a state where you you know mostly want original sound on, but then sometimes you're traveling and you don't want it on, this is where Zoom cuts can be really helpful because there's a shortcut that lets you set the state of original sound. So if you you know need to manage that on a session by session basis, you could even add it into your join flow. You could say, all right, well these are the meetings I'm normally going to join, and I want to join with original sound on. So in Zoom cuts, I'm going to have join this meeting, and then I'm going to have set original sound, and that way every time I join, the setting comes on that way. Um, there were some persistence changes that were implemented this summer. I think I spoke about it last time uh, with regard to the channel enumeration uh, choice uh, as part of that workflow. So that was resetting and in situations where it shouldn't. So that was addressed. Um, and then I would say stay tuned. Yeah, because I think the other the other piece about this workflow, which I'd like to improve upon is, you know, when you are uh, when you have set a set of conditions basically for the meeting and uh, the I think right now there's a workflow challenge of trying to coach somebody through using Zoom. And I think that there are things that can be done through the developer platform to help improve that experience. I think there are some apps that uh, look to do some things like that. I think Zoom OSC is uh, you know, one way that we've looked at doing that in the past. But as we build out the developer platform more, that's an area and a workflow that I, I want to uh, help refine. But I do think that there are, um, for most situations, there should be a tool to help get you through it. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. What's the best workshop or tutorial on getting started with Zoom Phone? Is Liminal addressing this app? Go to any. 
So I'm actually uh, quite interested in Zoom Phone. Um, for those of you who watch the Twit Network and watch uh, Leo's um, Ask the Tech Guy show, that used to be a radio show where people would call in from, and now it's mounted through Zoom. Uh, they're using Zoom Phone in order to be able to take the remote calls now. So rather than having a POTS line that you know is expensive and you know has a lot of infrastructure implications involved in it, they have a uh, a link that you can join and join a Zoom meeting if you want to participate with video and audio. But if you just want to call in, they have a Zoom phone number. And what's cool about that is you can merge a call to that number into a meeting that you already have going on. So what they do is somebody will call that number and then they'll merge the call into the back end meeting for the show. And now that Zoom phone shows up as a tile in the participant menu that then Leo can manage from his companion integration with Zoom OSC. So Zoom OSC then pushes the caller into a breakout room and they can have the call uh, directly that way. But as far as the remote person is concerned, they just dialed the phone number and they were able to join the call. So they're mixing between video people and phone call people all through the same meeting. The other thing that's cool about Zoom phone is the automatic transcription of the voicemail. So people now are calling in throughout the week with questions they want to ask on the show. The production team is getting transcripts of these voicemails. They can search through them, they can curate them, and then they can play back the original audio of the phone call on the show based on the questions that they identified they wanted to answer from the transcripts. So you, it's, I, I don't know that Zoom phone was ever intended to be used this way, but I have actually found it's been very successful for that type of production. Uh, when you combine it with the AI tools, you combine it with the breakout rooms and Zoom OSC and all that management, it's now like a radio show that's being produced, I think, at a fraction of the cost that it would have typically cost to do that. And it merges in all sorts of different ways that people want to communicate. Um, so it's a clever use case. And I think that uh, I'm excited to see Twit doing that. And I think there's opportunities for things like that, where you want the accessibility of phone, but you don't want all the infrastructural headache of POTS lines. Next question. Bill Mew in Tunbridge Wells, UK is back with, is there a published workflow guide for using Zoom ISO with vMix, controlling both via companion? Go ahead, Andy. So we used to have a video on our YouTube channel. I think it may even still be up there where we did exactly that. We showed Zoom ISO version one, sending feeds into vMix over NDI and then managing both vMix and Zoom ISO from Companion. Um, while Zoom ISO has changed quite a bit since that video was published, the high level of the workflow is largely the same. You send your NDI feeds out or you use the deck link to capture them or you manage it somehow there. You're sending some OSC commands from the Zoom uh, module in Companion to configure the Zoom ISO app. And then you also can simultaneously uh, load different settings for vMix from the companion integration for vMix. So all you're doing is you're sitting in front of your stream deck, right, pressing buttons, and it's controlling both applications. And again, that inter-app workflow is one of the great things about companion is that it, it has those hooks for multiple things simultaneously. So you can build a workflow that addresses more of those things at once. Next question. Zach Salsmith in Chautauqua, New York says, I work for a broadcasting company that uses Wirecast and Zoom for all of our productions. Telestream is apparently creating an integration with Zoom ISO for shared screens and participants to be brought into Wirecast directly. Do we know of a timeline? Go ahead, Andy. So this was uh, one of our NAB announcements was that uh, several developers, including Telestream, uh, are adopting the Zoom SDKs into their apps directly. And uh, a point of distinction here is that, you know, what we did is we created Zoom ISO, and then we took the technology we used to build Zoom ISO, and we put it back into the developer platform. Then we worked with developers to be able to integrate, integrate Zoom natively without needing Zoom ISO to provide the video feed. So what, what Wirecast announced basically was a meeting SDK raw data integration 
And that allows them to have people call directly and ask sources into the program. Um, I don't know if they've announced a release date for that. You'd have to, I think, ask them. Uh, I want to defer, of course, to the vendors on their timelines. But the, the but the story here, I think, is really interesting. Is you know the the work that we build for an app. It's really it's, yes, we want to make a nice app, but really what we want to do is build good technology that then can be reused. Uh, by these third-party developers to be able to bring that experience directly into their programs. I think it simplifies the workflow a lot and it offers a consistent experience across all the integrations that we offer. So I'm very excited to see it. Uh, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, I think it's uh, a great story. Next question. Robert Sabobody in Poland says, any changes or suggestions on making Zoom Cuts integration with Stream Decks? Adam Toe showed us here in office hours, for example, using uh, as uh, that is using a personal app generated for the shortcut. Go ahead, Andy. Yeah, so that's another area that we've been kind of working with the community on is what's the best way to trigger a shortcut from a Stream Deck. Now, there is a Stream Deck integration from the marketplace that is for shortcuts. Um, we found that it's sort of hit or miss in terms of whether or not the shortcut will actually trigger. So there's a, we think there's a, uh, a better and possibly a simpler way of doing this. And so what you do is you go to the uh, shortcuts app and you basically export the shortcut. And an easy way to do that is just to add it to your dock. When you add something to your dock, it goes into a folder on the Mac called, uh, personal applications, I believe. And inside of personal applications is basically like a, uh, a shortcut to the shortcut. It's a little uh, tile, it's a little app icon that you can click. And what it will do is it will run the shortcut when you run that app icon. So now you have a file. And what you can do is you can run the open file integration inside of the Stream Deck. And when you open the file that is the shortcut that you want to run, that will trigger the shortcut. And we found that that's super reliable. So without any external plugins required, you just export your shortcut as an icon on your dock. You can then remove it from your dock. It doesn't matter. It's in your personal applications folder. You then target open file on the uh, basically the little program, if you will, for that shortcut. And then when you run open file, it will execute the shortcut. Next question. Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. What is Zoom's answer for having a green room? Go ahead, Andy. This is yeah backstage. Sam, maybe you want to speak to that? Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say that's, that is backstage. It is the perfect version of it. So that is uh, a feature inside of webinar. Uh, it is uh, a feature that is you get access to by having a Zoom events or sessions license, but it does work within standard standalone webinars as well, as well as within Zoom sessions, Zoom events, whatever. Uh, but it is in webinars and backstage is a space that allows kind of a Zoom meeting to happen with all the people who are backstage while they can see and interact with the chat. They can see all the Q&A. They can see uh, and drive polls and kind of do everything they need to do. Uh, as well as up top, they get a program view of here's what the attendees are watching in the webinar, including the ability to listen to it. And when you listen to it, Zoom takes care of it in the echo cancellation because it knows that it's putting it out and it's all within that same app. So it's a really easy to use thing that like you can give to anyone out there. They just click, they join, they're in backstage. They don't need to know anything. They don't need to know how to double join or how to get on your comms call separately or use this link and then I'll push you to this other link. But uh, that's that's the way to do it. And that's if you're not doing like what we are today in where we have our talent meeting. We have this, we've got a meeting with breakouts where we can go to our various green rooms. You can have multiple of them. You can move then onto the breakout, which is the stage where Zoom ISO is pulling it and doing its thing. Um, look forward to finding some other workflows as webinar breakouts uh, come to fruition and eventually hit GA. That's going to be really exciting to uh, 
to, to look at how that may change our workflows as well. But Backstage being the one that brings that program view back is the simplest and most straightforward green room. Yeah, we we can't wait to see breakouts in, in webinars <laughs> because I think in meetings, we're so addicted to them because usually for most of our events, we're opening four or five breakout rooms and we're moving people moving people progressively through that system, which we call the Emerald City Protocol. <laughs> so so the uh, um, uh, because it's, we just move people through it to get them ready to go. Uh, but that is, uh, it'll be incredible to have that in webinar as well. The backstage works, of course, we use it um, in some of our shows, but uh, having multiple rooms will be great. And it's available now. Now, by the way, it, it did GA this summer. Oh, it's great! I just haven't. I got to get get caught up. Put a guide to it in the in the event chat yeah. for those who want to learn how to turn up. Andy, Sam, and Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thanks for having us. Always, it's good always to great to have you guys here. So see you at Zimtopia. That'll probably be the next time. Uh, so yeah, registration's open. Check it out, and then uh, we'll probably see you around then. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thanks to everyone, uh, the panelists, for all the great conversation in the first hour. A little bit in the second hour. Uh, thank you to the producers. A lot of great questions. We just started churning through them. I was a little worried at the beginning. I was like, oh, there's not going to be a lot of questions here. And then there was a lot of questions. <laughs> I, I, should, I should have more faith. Um, so, so the great job by the producers to ask on all the great questions that drove this conversation today. And thanks to the incredible team. Of course, uh, this is, uh, there's a team that's doing the development work. There's a team that manages it to make sure we have something every day to talk about. There's a team that actually runs this show. And, and these teams are all spread all over the world. And we really just appreciate the incredible contribution that everyone makes to making this happen every single day. Uh, we traveled a hundred, well, we traveled a lot today, 187,000 miles. That's 301,000 kilometers today. That's what it would have taken if we were all trying to all be in the same room. We'd have to all travel here and then we travel there. But instead, we just did it all over Zoom. Uh, and of course, um, that is 1.45, I'm sorry, 1.485 billion bananas for scale. All right, let's go ahead and jump into After Hours. How did I miss the webinar breakout rooms? Too busy over the summer. So cool to see you guys again. Thank you for being here. That's great. Andy, can I get my title changed to customer innovator? It's a lot of customers to have to innovate, John. <laughs> <laughs>